Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dean. The other familiar voice you will soon hear is Matt Feuerstein, but the third voice that you will occasionally hear, but not as often, especially not as often lately. It's been a while, and it was some of the best months of my life, but they are back. They are, as Matt said at the end of the last episode when he teased this person's appearance, really the, one of the podfathers of wrestling podcasts, as I continue to say, if you have had a wrestling podcast and not had this man on, I don't really believe that you've had a wrestling podcast. Um, he's done the uh, Wrestling Fun Time Arcade on YouTube. He's done Joe versus the World on the CubsFan.com. He's done the Five Star Match Game on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. He's done so goddamn many shows. <sighs> Joe Gagney, you're back. It's good to have you back. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be back. And uh, please, uh, please don't ask people to invite me on their shows. I, I, I don't feel like it these days. I just want to go to bed. I don't want to be up all night doing extra shows. I'm sure your show is lovely, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably good. Really, you can just do the shows from bed. I do it. I do this one from bed like half the time, so it's all right. I'm lying in my bed right now, not on my back or anything in a sexy coy way. Don't you pervs? Get excited. It, it's Aww. just, it's just, I have a small apartment. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe that for the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, definitely. One day. Um, the OnlyFans. <laughs> Through the years, OnlyFans. You know you no. want it. <laughs> That's the catchphrase. Just like Ico Pro. These are the two things people want. The three years, OnlyFans, and uh, Ico Pro. But, uh, for, so, through the years, for everybody who cares about our bodies. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as usual, the only thing I really have to plug is not an OnlyFans, it's not a Patreon, it's uh, just the uh, the two feeds we're on, because, as always, I should always feel like i got to mention, if you are listening to us just on the regular Through the Years feed, we also are on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, and there's a lot of great podcasts there, past and present. If you're listening to us on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, and you want to listen to just a feed of us, if that's easier, it's an easier access, definitely, to getting to our old episodes, um, we have a, our own feed, just find, search for T-H-R-O-H through the years on any good podcast search, you know, your app of choice. And I think you'll be able to find it. And we also have a YouTube channel, which I think we're up to maybe two or three people use who, for you weirdos who like to watch pod or listen to podcast, there's no video, some weirdos who, if you like to listen to a podcast on YouTube, we have that option available for you too. And with that, men gentlemen um you're not just men you're gentle uh i we have no news between the last ring of honor show or this one but there's lots of news that we'll have to talk about during the show but that will bring us to a show that joe gagney was at live even though it was not in the boston area fate of an angel took place july 16th 2005 at the connecticut sports center in woodbridge connecticut in front of a reported crowd of 900 fans um the observer would write about that attendance that Gabe Sapolsky estimated about 50% of the attendance, which was larger than their previous jaunt to New Haven, was new fans drawn specifically to see Hardy and said he more than paid for himself. Um, although it is interesting because Sean Radigan, uh, the pro wrestling torch writer who was there live, wrote in his live report, when Hardy's name was mentioned earlier in the show, there were scattered boos from the crowd. So that's something I guess we'll get, we'll talk to later in the show, but definitely, you know, there was a lot of the conversation around the show was how did people feel about Matt Hardy? And that would be basically end up being the conversation for basically the other two shows he was on in terms of what he was doing on those shows. But this show, it was really the talking point of the entire event. Um, in Matt Hardy's defense, uh, 
on one of these indie shows back then, would there have been? Would there? How many people would there have really been named from like WWE that wouldn't have gotten scattered boos? Like maybe Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, and that's probably about it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Hmm. I'm wondering if I agree. With, I'm not sure if I agree with. Uh, I, I mean, the point is like the point is there's a lot of contrarian fans at these types of events. Yes. Like they're going to boo just because like they boo. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about Matt Hardy more later. But I, I don't think that the fact that there's scattered boos is really so telling. Yeah, there's a line obviously where the star power is so big that I think the fans will get over their kind of protectiveness. But there'd be some like, scattered boos, I think, for, for yeah. anyone. You know. Like so, whereas, whereas Jeff Hardy got a massive amount of booze when he showed up. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. This is um, whatever we talk about later. Like Matt Hardy, night and day, got a far, far better reaction than his brother did. Uh, you know, in two thousand three in Ring of Honor. But a couple other quick notes before we start the show off proper. Um, uh, Kyle Sarazen, who wrote into a PW Insider Live report, wrote this, and I believe Joe, in your report on the CubsFan.com that you wrote at the time, you said something similar, where he said, um, "I spotted Stevie Richards watching the show from a table near the entrance, but he never went to the ring. He told me he was just there watching. Throughout the night, Aries, Styles, and the Carnage crew were seen watching the rest of the matches. So that, that's always interesting to me. Like the people that I mean, I know Brian Danielson used to talk about how like he would watch the entire card, and I, I guess." Many wrestlers do not do that, but I always thought it was interesting, like, the, the wrestlers that are so into things or just such students of the game where feel – I know with Danielson, I think he thought of it as also part of his, like, responsibility because watching the show kind of informs you, like, what the crowd has seen and maybe you adjust what you're planning to do based on what's come before. But it's interesting to think of even, you know, a big star like Styles was – you know, watching the rest of the show. Stevie Richards is an interesting name because isn't this the building that he did his run in at a few months earlier, and then he just that they dropped that completely immediately. Yeah, yeah, and it is weird that you know, yeah, that story. It's weird that obviously, I mean, Joe saw him too, so like, it's weird that he would. It, it was. It's weird to do like a um, a like crazy surprise run in, and then the guys just like visibly watching the show. <laughs> like months later with no fault because if i was a fan i would be thinking is is he gonna do another run-in tonight is is this is he gonna dethrone punk matt is, is stevie richards gonna take the title for ring of he, but like, he does a run-in in the main event of every connecticut show from now on <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun yeah but uh and then the final note, um, this was from PW Insider. Mike Johnson wrote, since I received a few emails about this, Jay Lethal wasn't booked last night as he was working for a Jersey All-Pro Wrestling in Rahway, New Jersey, where he teamed with former WWE star Charlie Haas. So, yeah, this is another one of those shows that uh, Jay Lethal isn't on. But, yeah, occasionally, you know, Ring of Fire with Cycle guys or also occasionally, I guess, guys would have other bookings. So it's happened before, and it is kind of – if you're wondering why um, – Jay Lethal was on the show in the midst of kind of a push for him. I mean, there you go. But we opened the show with Samoa Joe backstage. He says, CM Punk fooled the world. And he has to hand it to him. When the companies came calling, they made their decisions. Joe chose one company and Punk chose the other. Uh, Joe says Punk has made an impact everywhere he's gone. And in Ring of Honor, he's done it by winning the world title, proclaiming it the best belt in the entire wrestling industry, and then signing his WWE contract on top of it. Joe said Punk disgraced the belt by doing that, and he disgraced all the hard work that Joe and everyone else has put into the belt. And he did, he disgraced it when he did that. Uh, Joe says he'll put an end to Punk's disrespect. So, uh, this promo, obviously, it's like Joe's 
promo is usually very kind of short and sweet, but like this is one of those promos where my brief like overview of it does not do it justice, Matt. I, I know you mentioned this to me like when you were watching the show, you just send a message like, and Joe, I don't know how you feel, but I really feel like this is a, a really good promo from Joe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the better backstage promos of the year so far. You know, like you said, short, sweet, so it's not like it necessarily was put in a position to be super memorable, but I think it kind of was pretty memorable. Like, it would have been a major oversight if Joe never got to do a promo about what was going on with Punk. Like, you know, obviously he was involved physically in some of the angles, but he hasn't been on the mic, and he's not really the focal point, and he never does an in-ring promo, but I don't think there really needed to be a long in-ring segment of Joe talking about this he said everything that needed to be said like obviously of all the wrestlers in the company what punk is doing to the belt would affect joe more than anybody because that belt was more than anyone associated with joe at this time and punk and joe are so associated with each other from their series that joe had to say something and i think he said everything he needed to say in a what one or two minutes and it was perfect and joe's delivery was awesome and yeah i thought this was just a great great short promo yeah, Joe, My, do you have any thoughts? Or, oh, sorry. I just thought it was funny. He didn't mention uh, his opponent for the night at all, not even a throwaway <laughs> line, which was a title match. It was, he didn't even end like in Jimmy Rave, I'm starting with you. It was just like, you wouldn't even know he had a match tonight if that was all uh, that was all you saw, but it was very good. Well, yeah. it's, well, what that proves is that even though Joe says that he wanted to make the pure title, you know, the main belt in ROH, <laughs> clearly his heart was still owned by another belt. <laughs> It would be funny if while he was saying that Punk just, like uh, disrespected the world title, that like the camera panned down and the pure title was like just dragging along like caught in his shoe or something. To, like you can't disrespect a Ring of Honor title like this, and he's just like dragging the belt around. It's got like mustard <laughs> on or something. It looks like Baron Corbin. But um, but but the promo was so good that I didn't even like think about like oh yeah no me neither yeah like Joe Joe is totally ignoring what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> one joe no- only a joe can notice what another joe is doing truly on sure. a deep level that's right and that brings us to the opening match uh nigel mcginnis defeated the debuting first time in ring of honor i believe claudio castagnoli via pinfall in eight minutes seven seconds after he hits the tower of london so yes uh for those of you that are painfully young if you on the off chance you don't know this claudio castagnoli you might better know as cesaro in wwe and this was back this, this matt i gotta say this was a trip you know i've seen a lot of claudio castagnoli but to, you know after, i've seen you know recently so much more cesaro so to see claudio with the stringy long long sadly already starting to thin hair wearing the tie like it was a real like whoa it's been a while since i've seen him looking like this it was a real uh, no, it was less of a whoa and more of an a <laughs> What you doing looking like this? So, uh, Matt, what did you uh, think about this match? Well, first of all, I so I was looking at my notes, and I wrote about how it was kind of wild to watch, at this point, Claudio, knowing what his body was like, like him wearing a shirt in the ring. Um, (laughs) But also, I accidentally typoed, and I put that he it was weird to see him wearing a shit in the ring. And (laughs) and then I was like, wait a minute, this isn't the Woodstock 99 documentary. No one here was wearing shit. Um, But... um, but he was wearing a shirt. And so how very Roman reigns of him. Because Roman's another guy with a good body who wore a top for a long time, um, surprisingly. Um, but, you know, Claudio and Nigel had, you know, were no strangers to each other even at this point. And obviously they had great chemistry with each other. 
And I thought this was no exception. You know, it was short match. It's not like they did so much, um, but it was it was fun. Like it was it was just like they did good stuff. The one thing, the one critique I would have of the match is Nigel basically worked as a babyface. Like Claudio didn't work as a heel either, but like he didn't clearly work as the babyface. Nigel was playing to the crowd, and you know it was it, you know it just there was nothing. If you watch this match in a vacuum, you would not know that Nigel was an up and coming heel in the company. And I thought like that was kind of a negative in, in the terms of like it's sort of like old ROH, like where we used to complain about the babyface heel confusion, but. It was easy enough for me to put out of my mind as they did all their their fast paced sequence of roll ups and European uppercuts and lariats and you know Claudio did do a little bit of his a stuff when he flipped out of a cravat and it was just fun like I, I mean you know nothing no revel nothing revelatory or anything but a good debut for Claudio I I enjoyed it. So, Joe, um, obviously we know you went to a lot of the Ring of Honor shows in your area around this time, but was this your first time seeing Claudio? Like, did you have any experience seeing him on video or somewhere else? Or And just what did you think about the match? Oh, yeah, I had seen him a bunch. IWA Mid-South, a lot of Chikara oh, yeah. he was in at the time. This was the first time I had seen him live, which was a treat for me. And just a, a note, this was the first three matches were billed as like present versus the future. Although they never mentioned that on commentary, although you can kind of figure it out. And which they had done on a previous Connecticut show as well. I thought the match was good, but uh parts of it didn't it didn't quite come together as a whole for me. Like Claudio started the match. He seemed he seemed really slow. He did this forward roll at the start and it was like he was underwater. It just it went so slow. And they also did a stalemate spot very late in the match, which kinda of ground the momentum to a halt. But you know, it it allowed Claudio, he had some uppercuts, he had some great power spots, and I always liked Nigel's grappling, so I enjoyed it, even, you know, obviously they would could go on to have much better matches later on down the road. Yeah, I, I thought this was, like, a lot of times in Ring of Honor, when guys are just starting out, they either get, like, the five-minute, just, you know, just do a few of your cool moves and we don't have time for anything else, we don't really trust you yet, tryout match, or they get, like, the ten-minute you know, you get a real shot here. Try out. And this felt like them splitting the difference on the eight minutes where Claudio, you know, split it. But, it, it, you know, eight minutes is, again, like that middle ground. And I felt like, um, you know, Claudio and Nigel, they did some counter wrestling to start. And I, I kind of agree with you, Joe, that, you know, it didn't kind of necessarily maybe maybe again with the time stuff hold together as a complete match. But I do feel like you got to see a lot of like the natural gifts that made Claudio and still make him such a great wrestler. Like just, you know, he's an amazing base for lighter guys, but he's also very athletic for a guy, his size himself and strong. And you see a lot of his physical gifts here. Like um, he does, he, he does, he takes a tilt a whirl into an arm drag from a guy as big as Nigel. He, you know, he has this great agility for a guy, his size. He does leapfrogs. He does a tope here. He does these little forward, tumbles into the into european uppercuts and i think you know the best spot of the match was when he um he blocks a uh nigel tornado tv D- tornado ddt mid move and he just throws him in the air which he's you know you've seen this a lot of times but maybe you know a guy as big as nigel and he catches him in the air with a european uppercut and watching a crowd and watching a crowd react to it for the first time is very impressive is very fun you know because like we know we expect that from you know cesaro but they didn't expect that from claudio at this point yeah, a- absolutely. And um, 
Yeah, that it was just a it was I thought it was a good above average, <clears throat> nothing amazing, but like a good a- above average way to enter. You know, a lot of guys in Ring of Honor are coming with like worse first matches than this. I do think that probably the best way to showcase Nigel, I mean, I mean Claudio at this point would have been like a small flippy dude because I feel like he's really good. He was uh, still is like really good playing off one of those guys, but this worked well too. And Matt, I also completely agree that it was weird that. Nigel at this point seemed to be like a true clear heel against Colt Cabana and a baby face anytime he wasn't wrestling Colt Cabana. I mean, that will change soon, but that definitely, yeah, that threw me off too. And I guess we should also mention this was a Prezak and Lenny Leonard on commentary right from the start. This was another one of those shows where even though I had that note a few shows ago where Lenny Leonard said that like, um, you know, uh, Gabe started me off just doing a match or two, and slowly I did more matches as I started to do more shows in Ring of Honor. I remember you saying, Matt, when I first said that, you were like, well, I don't think that's the case. And, like, you're absolutely right. Like, your memory better than Lenny Leonard's, apparently, because this is, like, another early show where Lenny Leonard basically sits in on most of the show and just kind of drops out for the last couple matches. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's pretty much what they do. Like, Gabe does the main event matches for a, a f- really not even that much longer. Like, I think maybe for, like, a few more months. Yeah, so um, that brings us to the second uh, uh, present versus future match. Austin Aries defeated El Generico via pinfall in 11 minutes, 25 seconds after he hit the 450 splash. Uh, Joe, Battle of the Brain Busters. And if you look at the way they work this match, apparently Battle of the 450 splashes, too, in a nice touch. So, uh what do you think about this? I like this match a lot. One of my en- enduring memories of this was at one point, and I'm not sure when it was, but at one point it got really quiet. And because it was summer and the building was right next to the woods, you could literally <laughs> hear crickets. But when I watched the match back, the crowd seemed pretty into it the whole time. So I'm not sure quite when that would have been. But they gave Generico a ton here, which was surprising because uh, Aries is a former champion. He did a lot better than Claudio did in the, the opening match against an up-and-coming heel but, you know, he had to hit a huge dive, a top rope sunset flip bomb. Aries worked the back. It didn't really play into the match too much. And, and there was one spot where Tornado DDT didn't go quite according to plan. But they recovered pretty nicely. And Aries had the brain buster in 450 for the win. So I thought this was a, a, a real good match. Yeah, this, this was a good match. I agree. This was a good match. I, um, I, I think when I say good, like, I mean, like you know, three something ish stars, but like, I, I think people that are expecting an Austin Aries, like El Generico match, like at their absolute peaks when they're getting really both pushed hard on equal level and, and stuff like it's not on that level, but it's good of the level of second on the card ring of honor, 2005 match. Uh, both these guys were in interesting positions at this point in their careers, like kind of weird little different crossroads where, you know, um, Aries had lost, I think, three of his last four matches. You know, he had lost clean to Loki in a non-title match when he was champ. He loses clean to Punk to drop the title. He wins a four-way, then he loses clean to Joe in a pure title match. So for, you know, Aries, this is kind of a... Pretty quickly, he'll have something real purpose to do but this is kind of him floating around a bit you know kind of in a low ebb and generico you know he he's not much longer for the ring of honor world on this run but i did think it was interesting when you look at things how you know i looking at the booking around this time it does feel like Gabe was seeing more in Generico than Steen because, yes, Steen and Generico each got a singles match with Homicide. But then if you look at that, Steen gets more 
four ways and and like Vordell Walker in a singles match where if you look at Generico, he's getting, you know, 10 plus minute matches with guys like, you know, Roderick Strong, Austin Aries, and then the Homicide too. So he got some real chances to uh, show things off. And yeah, in this match, again, like you said, Joe, um, it, it is kind of – in a way, it's not surprising because this happens often when a, a new guy wrestles an established guy. The established guy will let the new guy have most of the match. But because Austin Aries was just the Ring of Honor world champion and Generico was so low on the totem pole, it was kind of crazy to see Aries basically give what I would say it was like 70% of the match to El Generico, especially when Generico is basically like working on one of his last few dates in the company at this point. Um it was good, but not again, not great. I did feel a, a, a few at a few points almost like an exhibition because it felt like Aries, you know, he was doing good to get on offense every once in a while, just enough at the right points to make this not feel like he was getting dominated by El Generico, but it almost did feel like Aries was basically giving Generico like an audition, like, okay, kid, I'm going to, you can take most of this match, just show your moves, try and get a job here more than like, a, a, a like a real match that was telling a story uh like joe said you know aries works the back but it doesn't really go anywhere although there was a really funny part where at one point um aries knees generic on the back and then he applies a chin lock and aries just says out loud out of nowhere he goes it's called working a body part people maybe you've heard of it it was just like he was announcing that he was starting to work over a body part which i thought was funny and probably my favorite part of the match was um Generico known for having the brain busters a finish, but he wasn't really using it much at this time because that was one of Aries' big moves in Ring of Honor. But he goes for the brain buster here. Aries gets out of it, you know. And then I like that not long after that, you know, Generico actually goes for a move that he doesn't usually do, which is the 450. So basically the story was kind of like not only was, you know, Generico trying to fight for like like the ownership of the brain buster he was like trying to steal one of uh aries other big finishers but of course then aries just gets the one by hitting his finishers but matt what did you think as you made a good point about how like if you weren't following roh at this point you just like popped on this dvd at random and you saw el generico versus austin aries you'd probably be like oh crap that's probably going to be an awesome match but if you're following it, you know, like, Generico was not Generico in ROH. He was basically like a jobber, you know, like, jobber to the stars at the very least. Um, and I guess he did job to a star here. Um, but, um, but it, you know, it, it definitely, you know, makes your expectations different. You're not going to watch this match and expect a great match, right? Like, I don't think when yeah. you when you saw this match was on the show, you weren't like, oh, that's probably going to be an awesome match, right? You were probably like, oh, that's going to be a squash for Austin Aries. And so this was pleasantly surprising because it wasn't a squash for Austin Aries. Like we, like you both said, Generico got a most of the match in terms of offense. Um, uh, I, I also thought it was quite good I, um, for, for a match on that level. You know, two pretty good up-and-comer matches in a row. Um, this was, you know, longer and, uh, you know, with the bigger star with Aries. And, you know, it, it's – but there was another issue like similar to Nigel, which is – you know, Aries never fully makes a face turn, but like he is sort of positioned as a face at this point. You know, he he cuts a promo after he loses the title, being like, "Don't feel sorry for me. I'm gonna get back on the horse." Like he tells Prince Nana to go shove it the week before, but now here he's back, like jawing with the crowd, insulting the referee. It's um, you know, mocking Generico. 
you know, uh, it's it's interesting. Just like, I, I mean, did did like did Nigel and Aries like did they just forget like what the, like, <laughs> they they had changed their characters recently like and they just kind of reverted to their um their instincts? I, I'm or did or did they get some direction to be like that? I I would be very interested in finding out. Um, but yeah, no, the match itself was good. A lot of good action. You know, Generico was got a got a chance to really show some stuff. Unfortunately, a lot of Generico's matches at this point did have little botches in them, um, and he did botch a spot here where he um, he tries to go for his like jump on the rope spinning DDT, but he messes up a bit, so he just like kind of then hits a regular DDT, and the crowd start chanting "You fucked up." But then he hits the uh, unnamed Haluva kick, and then the crowd kind of shuts up again. But you know, just that that little that little moment there, and you know, I'm sure those are the things that. Gabe was looking at when he stopped booking him, unfortunately, because he was obviously, you know, already really good. And it's kind of a bummer that he, uh, he, they stopped getting booked, him and Steen, about a week after this. You know, that, that's when they had their infamous match that was cut off the DVD. Um, but no, I thought it was a good match. Like, I had two good matches in a row. Um, I thought the show was off to a good start. The crowd was receptive to it. Um, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I, I was heartbroken about that, too. That's a great point, Matt, because, like, you know, Generico also, for people that forgot, like, uh, on that recent match he had with Roderick Strong around this time, he was doing just basically, like, the Arabian press, and he slipped and fell on that, and another, like, moment where the crowd, you know, got on him, and, and I felt bad, because that's two botches on moves that I've seen that guy hit, like, a hundred times, perfect, and it just felt like he was messing up spots that he probably, you know, would normally never mess up at, like, the worst time at this point in his career where he was trying to get, you know, a regular job with a big indie, but, I mean, obviously his career would work out for him, so, but I felt kind of bad watching these at the time, seeing both of these matches where he's getting these big chances and looking pretty good, and then, oops, like, one really prominent botch in each match, but... Um, that brings us to the four-corner survival match. Homicide defeated Azriel and Dixie and Kevin Steen in 8 minutes, 39 seconds when he pinned Dixie after he hit the cop killer. This would be the final of the three uh, present versus future matches. And as uh, Joe, as you wrote in your Cubs fan live report at the time, you know, uh, the, the future sucks. I think you said something like that. <laughs> and uh, um, Joe, I think you and Ring of Honor were right looking at what's happened in the last 16 years. The future did, in fact, suck. But um, – wow. <laughs> it was foretold through these three matches, but um, this was just a real fast paced spot fest from minute one. As far as these go, it wasn't the best one of these. It wasn't the worst one of these overall. I thought it was pretty fun, but like, you know, it's only eight minutes, so I can't go that high on it, but it was the usual thing where a little bit of sloppiness, just something happening all the time. Like homicide basically hits the tope con Hilo on uh steam, like, right in the opening minute. Um, I, I felt like, uh, Dixie looked fairly good in this. I've been liking what I've been seeing from Dixie lately, which is he, I can add him to the list of ring of honor wrestlers who I felt like kind of were raising their game right before they were done with the company. Cause it feels like there's been a few of them in the, through the years history. I felt like Steen, it was a fairly good showcase for him by this, the standards of this run he was having where he got to hit almost all his signature moves, including his big moonsault. The only thing he didn't really get to hit was the package pile driver. Uh, although again, in matches like this, you really do miss the, ch- like, again, I think a point we've been going through on this show has been Steen kind of needed by his own admission to really show his personality and an eight minute, like scrambly four corners match. Isn't going to let you show your personality. Uh, the, the one real surprise I had in this match was Azrael because I felt like 
for a guy again that was purported to be, you know, that Gabe seemed to be high on at some points that was trying to get a push, I felt like Azrael got almost no offense in this match. And you would think, you know, especially with Dixie in there and stuff, like you would think and even with the fact that Kevin Steen was almost out, I you would think that he'd be like the second most offense in this match. And I felt like really he took kind of a backseat to everybody in this match. But Again, maybe that maybe there was points in this match where like the action was kind of split where you would be like seeing Homicide and Steen wrestle and then the cameras wouldn't be on on Dixie and Azrael. So maybe there's stuff he did that we just didn't see. But I still to me, that was kind of like the, one of the main things I left with was like, oh, man, another match where Azrael kind of just mostly takes bumps and doesn't get to you know, kick ass much, but Matt, what'd you think about that? I know that when it comes to these four ways, this is the kind that you prefer, right? The, uh, the shorter scramblier ones, as opposed to the one from sign of dishonor, which is much longer and, um, builds more slowly, right? Like you're more, and this was definitely like a scramble match. This could have easily been like a six man mayhem, um, with two invisible wrestlers. Um, but, um, (laughs) but no, I, um, I yeah I also really liked it. Like I mean it's you know I thought it was a perfect length for what they were trying to do. It's another one of those deals where Homicide more than a lot of the other top stars he kind of brings himself down to the you know the mid Carter's level in in a good way, you know, where he kind of gets in the mix with some guys that he's you know maybe seen as being above and just kind of works in there. And he adds star power to the match but doesn't seem like he's above the match, which I which I appreciated. And, um, yeah, it was just, you know, really great nonstop stuff. It was, um, it was, you know, he, he hits a tope con hilo almost immediately on Steen. And, you know, at that moment, Smokes decides to, uh, tell Homicide that he's the quote, best Puerto Rican in the world as, um, <laughs> as, uh, Homicide is hitting Steen with a chair. So in case you were wondering who, who held that title, it's Homicide. Um, but they, um, but yeah, they they just uh, Steen and Homicide. They do a lot of like you know like quote strong style stuff where they like trade like kicks and stuff and you know and forearms and Steen does like the flipping leg drop and like you mentioned Dixie got a chance to look pretty good. You know he he does a springing drop kick to the back of Azrael. They cross body each other down. Then Steen comes in and he's hitting like spinning leg lariats and doing house of fire stuff and then homicide just immediately gets up and does the big running knee to the face and um steen hits a big a really great moonsault on dixie Azrael hits a top rope rana so he does get some offense um um and um Azrael gets he also gets a dive on to steen on the outside but then steen catches him and just hits a fall away slam to the guardrail which is probably the most memorable spot from Azrael in the match. Yeah, that's his big moment is taking a bump. Yeah. yeah, but he does get to dive first, so that yeah. makes it a big spot. Um, and then I thought it was funny that Dixie got a two-count on Homicide with a roaring elbow, because it's just like, I don't know, Dixie's not the kind of guy that you think gets a big near fall on a main eventer with a roaring elbow of all things. But, <laughs> hey, you know, maybe if they reinvented him as a guy who just did, like, those kinds of moves, he would have been a big star. Who knows? Um, but so, so they finishes. Homicide goes for a cop killer. Dixie escapes, hits a German suplex, at sending Homicide all the way over. So Homicide just pops up and hits the cop killer for the win. And um, yeah, it was just, I mean, pretty much what I described was pretty much the whole match. It was just like a lot of moves and it was fast. 
And um, they really, the one thing is they seem to play up the hatred between Steen and Homicide without really explaining it. But I, I didn't really mind that because the match was exciting and I thought Steen looked good. Another another thing where, because you know, Dixie looked good and he's about to leave, Steen looked good also. And he's yeah. also about to leave. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but really a great big, like undercard of the show. Cause it was like three, like, you know, real undercard style matches, but I thought they all delivered in a, to a degree that they should have, you know, not, no match like blew anybody away or anything, but like these were all just like fun undercard matches that got the crowd going. And I think that's, uh, that's a good thing to be. Yeah, uh, Joe, this seems like the kind of thing that would probably be, I mean, this was, you know, fairly fun watching it at home, but this seems like the kind of match that was so chaotic and quick, like, probably be more fun watching it live where you can just see everything that's going on and, you know, guys flying around the ring, like, but what what do you think about it? Well, first of all, I was really blown away by young Kevin Steen, because I've been watching him regularly for, you know, 15, 16 years, so changes in his appearance are incremental, and I was just kind of blown away, you know, him without any tattoos and yeah, he's so yeah. young. I mentioned this. I, I, I mentioned this the last time he appeared. Like, I don't think there's anyone who looks more different um, than Steen does on these shows. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I posted a, a picture on Twitter, and and he actually responded. He just said <laughs> he's responded life in a tweet with an exclamation point. <laughs> I don't know if he meant. This is giving him life. It was a lifetime ago. Oh, life, I, th- I, 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 th- I think he probably meant like that's what life does to you. Yeah, I suppose so. I um. But and by the way, if you look at picture of him from like late two thousand seven, he already looks much more like he does now than he did in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like a lot of his aging, it's felt like got condensed into a few years. So uh, as far as the match, it was like Weekend of Thunder night one where Homicide was in a four-way. It was clearly the biggest star in the match. And I like, you know, I thought this match was all action. I thought the action was pretty clean. You know, everything was hit really well. I liked they had, it wasn't kind of four random guys. You had Homicide and Steen had their issues and Azrael and Dixie had a history. And I thought the action was really frenetic. And (laughs) at one point, Steen uh, sold a corner knee from Homicide like he was having a seizure, which was quite amusing to me and you know not not a great match but very very entertaining and uh dixie landed right on his shoulder for the finish and that had to stink and this i believe was his last ring this was his last ring of honor match so i guess uh, we can cross him off the list yeah that's a perfect segue in fact uh, to i got a little bit of news about dixie that happened at the time and it was funny one my one of the things i love doing about I love doing the show that happens when I do the show is when I see something weird during one of the shows, I go, am I just imagining that that's kind of weird or why? And then when I do the research, I find like a story that completely explains it. So the couple of weird things I thought here was first off, I thought homicide uses the cop killer in like a random kind of meaningless for undercard four way, which I thought was a little weird because, you know, homicide doesn't do the cop killer in just every match. Like even some mate, a lot of major matches, he will tease the cop killer, but never hit it. And then like, again, like, um, there's a bunch of refs coming to the ring afterwards to check on Dixie. And like going to your point, Joe, I was actually thinking based on the way Dixie land, like was that a legit injury? And then luckily when I did my research, I found a story that explains all of this because PW insider wrote after the show last night was the last appearance by Dixie for a while, which will be blamed on homicides, cop killer finisher injuring him. Ring of honor wants to give him time away to be freshened up and brought back with a new storyline as they are high on his work. So I wonder if they were really high on this work or is this the kind of – if this was more of a, you know, it's not your fault, baby. It's my fault. I'm not ready for this relationship. Like just a nice way to 
say goodbye to him because he does not, to the best of my knowledge, come back. I but. also would love to find out, like, in, I guess we'll find out in the future, if they ever once are like, yeah, Dixie's not around because of that cop killer. Like, if they ever <laughs> even, like, mention that. I, I, or if they did on, like, old newswires or anything. I don't remember that. I just remember him being gone, but I guess we'll find out. But it is interesting that they seem to go to enough effort to like do something slightly special to write them out rather than just – I feel like a lot of guys, they would just stop booking them. But to literally go the extra mile of, OK, Homicide can give him the cop killer. We'll have guys come out there and act like he's really hurt and we'll write – we'll give him like a legit reason to be written out. But – and then the other thing was uh, I felt like this was kind of a weird thing where the PW – it almost felt like the PW Torch reporters were asking Gabe because they talked to him frequently after shows like – I feel like they were kind of overreacting, but maybe you guys can weigh in after I read this. But the torch wrote on, on the time on these three matches um, with some former Ring of Honor names returning and new wrestlers rising to the top of cards. Some longtime Ring of Honor main eventers have been working early card matches. Last Saturday, Ring of Honor chef Austin Aries worked the second match on the card against El Generico and Homicide wrestled Kevin Steen, Dixie and Azrael in the third match. Sapolsky says that's not a demotion for those wrestlers, but just a natural rotation of Ring of Honor talent that's been typical of the promotion all along. Austin Aries and Homicide are by no means pushed down the card, Sapolsky tells the Torch. I wanted them in matches that would feature them and highlight them for the new fans that were coming to the show. They were in matches that would display their talents and get fans hungry to see more of them, while giving the younger guys like Kevin Steen and El Generico a chance to have higher profile matches. In Ring of Honor, it doesn't matter where you are on the card, because pretty much every match can be a main event or semi-main event. We've had people like Brian Danielson, Spanky, James Gibson, tag title matches, Colt Cabana, and many more in opening matches this year, is a testament to the depth of the roster, and it does not mean they were pushed down the card. So, I mean, I pretty much agree with Gabe here. Like, this feels like people, like, if, if you've watched Ring of Honor regularly, you should know that there usually is a bigger name that will work lower on the card. I mean, this isn't even the first time, like Matt, you were talking earlier, Homicide semi-regularly would, like, kind of work down on the mid-card level, probably more than most guys, but it was, it, it, it almost feel like just that they were asking Gabe about this felt like maybe a bit of an overreaction, but Maybe I'm overreacting to what I think is an overreaction. Do you have any uh, thoughts about that? I think maybe they're just kind of like having something to write about. You know, if yeah. if they went up to Gabe and were like, "This was the only thing they wanted to talk about," then that's an overreaction. But if it was just a question in the middle of a bunch of other questions, then I feel like it's a, a reasonable thing to ask. Although, like you said. I think what Gabe said is true. It's just a natural rotating of guys. I mean, every promotion does it, right? Like, yeah. no, nobody's in the main event all the time except for maybe like the top, top, top person. But, you know, even Joe has been in some lower card matches, you know, over the course of the year. So, so yeah, I, um, I think what Gabe said is pretty right on. I mean, James Gibson spent the last double shot doing kind of meaningless four corner, ma- four corner matches and tonight he main events. So, yeah, it, there's no real indication of where you're at. But right. um, next up, CM Punk comes out to the ring. He's dicked out in a baby blue shirt. I, uh, oh, CM Punk's style choices during this run just fascinate me. Uh, I'm not used to CM Punk wear, dressed like a normal human being or I what mean, he thinks a normal human being should dress like. I think so, I think he went out of his way to look as dorky as possible, honestly. <laughs> like, I, I, re- I really do feel like that. Like the um, – like the like just the shirt that he was wearing and the slacks. I feel like he looks like he's about to go golfing. I, it has to be intentional. <laughs> so he comes out wearing that stuff, world title in hand. Uh, he struts around ringside. He eventually gets in the ring, grabs the mic. He gets showered with booze and a fuck you punk chant. Uh, he asks that the crowd likes James by God, Gibson, the redneck messiah. 
Punk says, if any of the fans want to come into the ring and take the mic out of his hand, be his guest. And holy, uh, does that play weird knowing something we'll get to much later in the show? Um, he's, Punk says, he'll stand on your neck the way he's going to stand on Gibson's neck tonight. He's going to shatter his hopes and dreams. Uh, Punk then puts Gibson over, though. He puts him over as a hell of a wrestler and a mat technician. And he says, some people even think that Gibson is Ring of Honor's 2005 MVP because he has fantastic match after fantastic match. At this point, the crowd decides to give Punk a super loud Sunday night heat chant to, like, shit on him. Punk just waits it out and continues. He says that the thing about all those fantastic matches Gibson has had Ring of Honor, he doesn't win them. He says Gibson would be Ring of Honor's 2005 MVP if it wasn't for him. He says in baseball teams, he says baseball, in baseball teams need pitchers and closers to win baseball games. And Punk describes Gibson as a great, as a great pitcher, but he's not a great closer. He says he's failed, he says he failed against Aries, he failed against Joe, and the only reason Punk is wrestling him tonight is so that he can make him have to go home and tell his little boy again that he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't win. Punk says James Gibson can't win the big one. At this point, James Gibson actually shows up at the entry ramp. He's taping up his fists, walking to the ring. Punk says if Gibson gets in that ring, it's his funeral. He calls him a hillbilly. Gibson at this point runs into the ring. Punk flees to ringside. Gibson grabs the mic, and we see at this point that Gibson is wearing a Roderick Strong t-shirt. So I guess they're kind of – I think Gabe at this point was trying to try and push that Roderick Strong was Gabe's – I mean uh, Gibson's protege, so to speak. But uh, Gibson grabs the world title that uh, Punk left in the ring. He says there's no way Punk is going to let – no way he's going to let Punk take this title to WWE and re- disrespect this company. Gibson says he considers this title the most prestigious title in wrestling. He doesn't play mind games like Punk, and he says if Punk wants the belt, he'll have to come get it later tonight. Uh, a ref at this point jumps in the ring. He tries to give, get Gibson to give up the title, and while they're arguing over it, Punk wraps the chain around his fist, gets back in the ring. He punches Gibson in the head repeatedly. Punk grabs his belt and tells Gibson not to ever put his hands on something that doesn't belong to him. Gibson, we see at this point, he's busted open. He's bleeding from the head. Punk keeps punching him but eventually leaves the ring as Gibson sells being hurt. At this point, a real funny moment to me where Punk yells at the people sitting at the table at ring. So he yells at uh, Ring of Honor owner Kerry Silken. He says, you know, do you want to mess with the champ? Then he uh, says something similar to ring announcer Bobby Cruz. And then he sees that there's a third person at ring at the ringside table. And Punk just stops her and he goes, I don't even know who you are. And he just keeps walking, which made me laugh. Um, I bet it was true. Said, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know who he was, but... Uh, Punk says, you're looking at a dynasty here. He leaves, and we see a bloody Gibson keep trying to stumble to his feet. So um, before I ask you guys what you feel, I'll just there's a little note from the Observer that says, Punk bloodied Gibson up with a chain. Gibson came out hours later for his main event with his head bandage. And then Dave adds, this was specifically based on the Ric Flair, Ted DiBiase angle in the 80s on Mid-South Wrestling. It wasn't that also just the match that... um. Tony Khan did like a Phil Schneider podcast about like talking about that match. So apparently that match, like I should re I, I can't remember if I've ever seen that match, but apparently that's a match to watch. If so many people keep that as kind of, as kind of a touchstone, but uh, guys, what'd you think about uh, this angle? Hey, um, so I, um, so speaking of guys not mentioning things um, in promos, did you notice, even though Gibson brought it up, Punk never once mentioned like his main angle that he's in, which is, I'm going to WWE and I'm leaving with the belt. Like, he just cuts a promo on Gibson about the masks they're going to have. Like, they like, you would ne- if you like, he never brings up the, like, his whole situation, which I thought was an interesting choice. Like, did he forget or was that intentional? Like, did, did you notice that? 
there, there's been a couple promos he's done, I think, during this run where he, maybe even like the Sam Dishonored one where he really focuses more on like, you know, the fans let me down, AJ and Daniels were traitors. Like he very, like he doesn't lean into the I'm selling out aspect nearly as much as he could have. Yeah, like he, I, yeah, you're right. He doesn't mention WWE that much. If he doesn't, he doesn't mention like at all in this promo. Not at all. Yeah, like yeah. Gibson refers to it. Um, the the, the uh, I mean, this was I thought it was good. You know, Punk's always good. Like this was a good little angle, and like you said, it's an homage to the uh, Flair and DiBiase thing. But logically speaking, and I know this is just nitpicking, but you know, like I said, what what else is the point of the show if not to do that? <laughs> um, so like. This entire company is against CM Punk it's taking the belt and taking it to WWE. Why would the ref come in at this point and be like, <laughs> Gibson, give that belt back to the guy who's stealing it from us? Like, you know, it's just like, like, whatever. Like, like, like the ref, the ref's like that committed to the rules that he's like, let, gonna override the, the company itself in favor of Punk. I, I mean, but th- those are my little nitpicks. But like overall, yeah, it was fine. It was a good promo. I, I thought it was. Sets up a good angle for later in the night. I don't know how well it totally works, like in terms of like adding to the match, but it was a good try. Yeah, Joe, what did you think? I, I think you said at the time you were pretty into this. So, what do you think watching it back all these years later? Yeah, I mean the the whole punk thing is my favorite Ring of Honor angle ever. I thought you know it was it was so impressive what they did because you really didn't know. I mean, you knew how it was going to end, you didn't know when. And I, I remember following along the. ROH boards, you know, the last two shows, like, oh, is Punk going to lose it to Jay Lethal? Is he really going to lose it to Roderick Strong? So that was a big draw to this show. As uh, as far as Punk's fashion goes, as <laughs> literally how I used to dress when I had an office job. I had, well, I had an office to go to. Like, I used to <laughs> have, like, a powder blue shirt. So, and now that I work from home exclusively, I just wear uh, gym shorts and CM Punk shirts, ironically enough. So, and, uh, no, I thought that, I, I'm like, oh, this is just an old territory angle. We've talked about how Punk has kind of been an old nwa champion i was like oh yeah this is just an old territory angle to bloody up the the baby face before i, I didn't peg it as that uh flair the dibiase match as the homage it was uh it was based yeah. on but yeah I, I knew it was uh was that and i did like uh punk's little flick of the wrist to uh wrap the chain around his hand i thought was very impressive but uh no i thought it was a solid angle to add a little bit more uh a little more fuel to the main event and that brings us to our next match, a Ring of Honor tag team title ultimate endurance match. Uh, the Carter True of Logan DeVito successfully defend the titles when they defeated Lacey's Angels of Cheech and Deranged, the Embassy of Eddie Vega, Fast Eddie Vegas, and the debuting Excess, or as he'd be known elsewhere on the Indies, Excess 69, and the Ring Crew Express of Dana Marcos. The uh, eliminations went this way, and of course, as always, a Ultimate Endurance match is an elimination four-team tag match where every fall has a different step. So in this match... Um, the whole match went 13-29. The first fall was a scramble match. The Ring Crew Express eliminated the Embassy when Marcos pinned Excess after he hit a senton off of Dunn's shoulders. That happened in 534. Uh, in the second fall, that was called an Anything Goes match. Uh, the Carnage Crew eliminated Lacey's Angels in 804 when DeVito pinned Cheech after Deranged was hit with a powerbomb neckbreaker combo on top of him where he, Cheech lands on him. And then the, the final fall, of course, you know, you got to end a match full of stipulations with the climactic normal tag team match stipulation where the Carnage Crew defeated uh, Ring Crew Express in 13 minutes, 29 seconds when DeVito pinned Dunn after he hit the second rope spike pile driver. Um, Matt, we have seen a few of these, uh, 
ultimate endurance matches. This is probably one of, probably of all the ones we've seen, like the least kind of important one in terms of like name value and stuff like that. But what do you think about it as a match? Um, this to me was bad. Um, I, uh, maybe not bad. It's maybe that's too strong, but there was a lot wrong with it. Like there was some, there was some okay stuff, but, um, First of all, like like you said, it is kind of a random appearance of this match because previously it had been a main event gimmick, right? Like the yeah. uh, the world title classic was the main event, um, you know, even above the famous Samoa Joe CM Punk match, um, and then a Glory by Honor three, it was the main event, um, and this is just like total random. Like what? Like what is it even doing here? What is it? You know, like it was kind of like what? Like huh? Why? Were there any other Ultimate Endurance matches besides the two that I mentioned so far? My memory is legendarily awful. Um... I can't. I think, do not know. I can't think of any like there. I can think of some later ones, but not any from previously, other than the ones I mentioned. Um, other other random things about the match. For instance, Fast Eddie is wearing jeans for some reason. Like, I actually have a reason that I can I, just quickly. Yeah, I oh, can. I, I can assume the reason, but go ahead. Yeah. I'll just go quickly to my notes. PW Insider wrote, Fast Eddie's bags were lost by his airline, which is why he was wearing jeans last night. So, that, yeah. That is what I assumed. Reason. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, his tag team partner is someone who's never appeared in ROH before, but now he's getting a tag team title shot. So there's that, too. Um, so just, I wonder if Fast Eddie's tag team partner was lost by the airline. Um, and they, had to, they had to get excess in there. Um, but, um, yeah, it was... just baggage. Yeah. It, 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 nice. <laughs> nice. Um, wow. That's the highlight of the entire podcast so far, you saying that. Um, but, like, as far as the match itself, like... I mean, you know, the first spot was a scramble, so there was some fun stuff. You know, Derange was good in it. Like, he, he, he teases high-fiving Marcos and instead pokes his eyes, which I appreciated. Like, Marcos would fall for that. Of course he would. Um, but, like, there's also awkward stuff um, done in Marcos. They do stage dives onto a pile, but it's set up awkwardly because they, like, they go for the spot very slowly, and everyone is just standing there for a long time until they hit it. Um then there's another spot where Cheech teases like a run-up dive, but then like jumps backwards off instead of doing the dive. And like the way this match goes, I couldn't tell if that was an intentional fake out or a botch. Um, but either way, um, DeVito comes in and just like backdrops him over the top rope onto a pile. Um, I do like stuff like Cheech doing a springboard side headlock on Loke and then Loke turning into a, a Saido suplex. Loke is not a good guy to do a side headlock to because he has that Saido suplex. So don't side headlock Loke. That's uh, that's my advice to uh, all the listeners out there who are going to try the side headlock. Um, but um, yeah, the last few minutes of the scramble were were pretty fun. Like Derange went for a cabrada, but Eddie caught him. Derange turned it into a tornado DDT, which is also something that um, that um, Derange does a lot. Like he's someone catches him and he turns it into a tornado DDT. Um, um, then Eddie does the fallaway power slam. And goes for the pin, but DeVito goes for a moonsault, and Eddie moves, and DeVito moonsaults deranged, and Eddie breaks up the pin, and Cheech gives him a running knee out of the ring. Um, then Excess gets a tarantula-like half-crab, but Dunn breaks it up by elbow-dropping him off the top, and Marcos pins Excess to end the first fall. I thought that like last minute or so of the scramble was probably the best part of the whole match, honestly. Um, then the second fall is a street fight, which, again, it just... It, it's a weird, I think, progression of matches, but uh, we'll get to that, I guess, afterwards. Um, very short. Um, um, 
you know, Marcos is whipping Logan to the guardrail, and then Lacey's Angel double teams the Ring Crew Express, and they hit the Doomsday H Crusher, and Dunn hits the Torture Act Power Bomb, and they go for the assisted Senton, but Loke low blows Dunn. They do the Power Bomb Neckbreaker on Deranged onto a garbage can on top of Cheech for the pin, which was a good finish, but a very short fall. Nothing really to say about that. And then after all that craziness, Dunn and Marcos and the Carnage Crew are just supposed to have a regular tag team match, um, which is just like – I don't know. It's just weird. Like, the, just imagine the, the idea of, like, being, like, beaten up with trash cans and, like, doing all this stuff, and then you just have to, like, all right, now you got to follow the rules. Like, it's just – it's I don't know. It's, it's just weird. Um, so they have a match, and it's not super great, um, you know uh, – Marcos hits an enzigiri, um, and it's a pretty weak kick, so they do the spot again, um, which is weird, and so the second time he hits a better enzigiri, I, I thought that was unnecessary to just repeat the spot, but I guess they disagreed, um, and so they, so Marcos gets the hot tag to Dunn and is not the hottest hot tag I've ever seen, and there's like some awkward timing, but they do, uh, the Ring Crew Express do hit a double team Rana and the whole kick combo thing, and... Uh, eventually, the the Carnage Crew go for the top row pile driver, but the Ring Crew Express stop it, get a couple roll ups, um, but then they they hit the second row pile driver and they get the win with a uh, with a handful of tights. Um, just a lot of awkward timing, um, a weird weird pacing. Um, like I said, I think the best part of the match was the last minute of the scramble, and I really have nothing super negative to say about the street fight part. It was just so short. But I just didn't think this this held together much at all. Uh, Joe, uh, what are your thoughts on the match? And also, could you tell people based uh, if you if you don't remember, I can remind you. But I'm sure you probably looked over your old report who you thought Excess was when you were watching this, not knowing who he was at the time. Oh, I don't. Who, who did I think it was? Like I think Rob you, said you thought he was Matt Striker. Oh, it was Matt Striker. That's <laughs> right. Because I couldn't hear. There's just some random guy. It was like. In the match, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know who this is. Yeah, I didn't know if it was Matt Striker. It was not Matt Striker, but uh, you know, props to I th- I, th- I, th- for, I think uh, I think it was Matt Striker. <laughs> <laughs> but why weren't everyone chanting "School sucks" or things like that then, no, Matt? No, Matt Striker with a Y. Oh, why were they chanting eyebrow, <laughs> monobrow? I don't know. Um, so, what did you think about this, uh, Joe? Apart from your, your, obviously, you were racked with confusion the entire match trying to figure out who Excess was. And for those who don't know, Excess would be more notable. I think he's probably best known for working. I believe it was like the IWS promotion, where um, was kind of uh, uh, Kevin Steen and El Generico's home base promotion in Canada early on. So, I'll that's just, I'll just state, I'll just state for the record, I don't know him from that. <laughs> that, that, that's I, I would say if most people if they know him they know him from there so if you don't know, if you don't know there you probably don't know yeah exactly so but joe what'd you think i i just remember being there live and being like you know seeing the carnage crew come out with the belts and being like oh okay, this is the tag division now it's you know all these really lower car teams like i know the the carnage crew had some angles and you know the occasional main event in the past but it was still very very odd to see them you know done in marcos Special K, you know, and Fast Eddie and Jeans and some guy who would never be seen before or again getting a tag title match. But good for Nana for getting him there. That's some good managerial work there. Uh, I thought that, I thought this was pretty OK. Like, I thought the, the crowd was super into it. Like, even Cheech was getting chance at some point. I thought there was some, you know, some of the work wasn't good. The repeated spot after the Enzigiri wasn't great. But, the, you know, I, I like the uh, the 
doomsday ace crusher spot i thought you know the the you know, crowd carried it and the work was pretty solid so it was pretty okay it was just you know kind of a weird blip in the the tag titles history and uh i'll just say this <laughs> anecdote interesting to no one but me at one point i think dunn hits a torture rack into a power bomb which is uh i think to myself oh that's the tower hacker bomb which is what linus asuka called it and i think like i i bet not many people know that's the name of it but then on the tape you can faintly hear someone yell out tower hacker bombs so i'm like oh that guy knew too so but it was you that was you joe it was, yeah i <laughs> believe me, i don't yell anything at shows i just <laughs> i just sit and enjoy myself it's quiet so i, I can vouch that it was not me I just picture you like you sitting on the opposite side of the building and you just lock eyes with that guy from across the building and you just give like a little solemn nod and like a, a, a little thumbs up. Like, I give him the Robert Redford head yeah. nod and uh, clap there like, yeah. The truth is, the <laughs> truth work. is Joe never yells anything during live wrestling shows except when someone hits a tower hacker bomb and then he sells <laughs> – then he yells tower hacker bomb. That's his, that's his one rule. It's the only thing he ever says at shows but he, <laughs> and he hasn't had many opportunities to say it. Sure By the way – Tower hacker bomb. Do not say that collection of words anywhere but a pro wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that, that is a pretty um, – yeah, that's – that's. That, I mean I know Lion Asasuka was wrestled and did that move way before anything that would make that problematic. But boy, <laughs> it is problematic. <laughs> so uh, it sounded like Joe enjoyed that match a bit more than you, Matt. And I will say I enjoyed the match I think a bit more than you as well. I thought – you know, I, I like this – Kind of for the same reasons I like the four corner match, but I like this a bit better. I'd probably give it like three and a quarter stars. Better than I the think four in, corner match? Oh no! Yeah, I, I I I definitely disagree with you on this match. You know, I think we found doing the show. There's some things you like a bit more than me, and there's some things I wouldn't say like I love these kind of matches, but I think I have like a higher floor for them, where I'm more maybe accepting of like just some of the bad parts of these matches. Maybe um, I just felt like first off, let's just say. The, the ultimate endurance rules are a mess. I think the basic concept of the ultimate endurance match, the idea of four team eliminations, every elimination is a different step. That's a perfectly good concept for a wrestling match. I feel like the stipulations are almost always so weird. Like in this match, a scramble match, you know, the rule that makes a scramble match a scramble match technically is that when guys roll out of the ring, someone can become the legal man without having to tag. But really – a scramble match basically just means everyone runs in and out of the ring and the refs don't care. And the problem with having that as one of the steps is that basically every other step, that's also what happens. Like even in the final minutes of the regular normal tag team match, it basically becomes a scramble because the ta- everyone just stops thinking about tags and the ref doesn't care. And then likewise, the anything goes match is basically just more of a scramble with a couple garbage can spots. And then, like you said, Matt, then the idea of having a, after having two gimmick falls ending with a normal tag team match where there are no, where there are no special thrills, like that is the weirdest choice. The only thing I will say, it does help the match in the sense of it gave them a chance to kind of a reason to kind of settle down and build for a hot tag. But then, like you mentioned, the problem with that is the hot tag is built around, um, I forget, Dunn or Marcos, you know, like hitting the Enzigiri, except like you mentioned, he um, completely overshoots the Enzigiri as his head, his foot flies over the head of the guy. And so they do the rookie mistake of repeating the spot. And the worst part was he did the thigh slap for the first one. So you could even hear like the real loud clap, crack when you don't see any contact. And it was just like, yeah, that was kind of ugly. But I, I guess why I liked the match was it was just more – it was what I want from Scrambled. I just considered the whole thing one long scramble despite the stip. And it was 
sloppy, but something was always going on. It was entertaining. Um, it was just dumb and stupid, but I was never bored by it. I even liked, you know, Exus didn't get to do a lot, obviously, but I even liked he did this cool thing that looked almost like a backslide into a backbreaker. Um, Fast Eddie did this tilt-a-whirl into a DDT, under, but, but it looked like Derange took the DDT right on his face. Like, again, that's the kind of stuff that I look for in scrambles, where it was probably a botch, but at least it looked cool. <laughs> it looked crazy, and I remembered it, so... This match had a lot of that, but I, I will also say watching this match, I've kind of realized, you know, early on doing the show, Matt, I don't know, I want to know if you agree, and Joe, obviously, if you have any thoughts, chime in, but, um, like, I always thought, man, like, maybe the Ring Crew Express were under push, because they were always more over than you'd expect, and they're such a fun team, but I feel like in the last six to eight months or whatever of shows, like, we've seen them occasionally get to do a little bit longer matches or a little bit bigger matches. And I do feel like they do kind of get exposed when they have to do more or have more of the spotlight or have to carry a larger load on their own. And I, I, I think what I've come to the conclusion of, they were basically used right where they should have been, which they were a really fun undercard ma- act, but they're kind of best hidden in five minute matches or where they're only doing like four or five minutes of matches in a big multi-team thing. Because I feel like, the more they have to shoulder the bird on their own, the more you start to see that they are, you know, they're, they're some, they're just not as sharp, maybe as, as complete packages as a lot of other wrestlers on the roster. Um, so you're asking if I agree with that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I hate to say it, you know, like I, cause like I, cause do, I love those guys. Yeah. But like, no, you're right. Um, but I will, I will ask you this though. If you had to choose like which team gets kind of the, uh, the, um, honorary brief tag team title run would you choose the ring crew express or would you choose the carnage crew i mean i feel like almost like i feel like the carnage crew needs it more because like they don't get love from people so if you want to show them appreciation it's almost like they need more love from you because the fans aren't giving them much but i do feel like could you imagine how big the pop would have been if that was the ring crew express winning the titles and not the carnage crew especially in manhattan i don't think it would have made that big of a difference on that when they you know in buffalo when they had that tag title shot i don't think that would have gotten the level of pop you're looking for but if they had done it on the show in manhattan i think you're totally right yeah that would have been insane yeah so yeah yeah but other than that yeah so uh moving on to the next match uh, well, first, Ash, we go backstage where we're joined by Sugar Sean Price, who I wrote in my notes, appears to have lost some weight and found a tie because he definitely looks a little more svelte. He's wearing a tie. So he and Claudio, t- this show is all about the ties. Um, I'm surprised Punk didn't wear one. So uh, Price tells us that uh, the cut on James Gibson's head is not closing. So it's looking very doubtful that he'll be able to wrestle CM Punk tonight. Then we go back to the action because we've got AJ Styles defeating Roderick Strong via pinfall in 16 minutes, 37 seconds after he hit the Styles Clash. Uh, Joe, this is, um, you know, this was a big, you know, a lot, one of the big themes of this year was Gabe really trying to push Roderick Strong hard. And even though this is a match he loses, this was another one of those matches that he gives to people he's pushing where he's getting to go 16 and a half minutes, 50 50 with a real top name. Uh, what did you think about this match? I thought this match ruled, and uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have anything more to add. Uh, I thought AJ was out of his out of this world here, and um, I think he had a TNA pay per view match the next night, so it was even doubly impressive all the work he put in. And uh, Roddy absolutely kept up with him. There were just like a half dozen crazy spots here, like AJ going for his usual 
drop kick spot, but turning it into a backflip. Uh, he did a blind moonsault on Roddy as he getting back into the ring. There's a crazy finishing sequence, and uh, it looked like Roddy almost got uh, paralyzed by the Styles Clash. And weirdly, right after this match was intermission, and I'm, the building was very hot, so I went outside to get some fresh air, and I saw Roddy talking to someone on a cell phone. So I don't know if that was, you know, telling someone he was okay, or you know, maybe someone would have heard like, "Oh, right, he took a bad fall," so he's letting him know, or if that was something he did after every match, just to let someone know he was, yeah, the match went fine, something like that. I don't know. I just thought that was mildly interesting, but uh, he was calling. Yeah, really... He was calling in to send the results to the Ring of Honor message board. <laughs> I was going to say that. Could you imagine him covering his mouth, going, "Yeah, uh, this is Todd uh, uh, Roderick Strong just had a great match. Oh man, it's amazing. You got to tell him about it. Like, could you imagine if he did that?" <laughs> I don't think he. I don't think he needed to do it on this night. <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, oh, AJ God. was uh, clearly positioned. He was the better wrestler, but uh, yeah, they they gave Roddy a ton, and the crowd was super into it. Although when they when they chanted for Roddy, and he did Styles pose, and then he got soundly booed. So it's like, which is, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying this was like a perfect match. I think it kind of meandered at points a, a little bit. It wasn't like the best match of the year, but uh, it was I, I think my favorite match of the night, and just uh, just really exciting stuff. Uh, I like this match, but I, I I probably didn't like it as much as you. I would give it maybe three and a half stars. I felt like they worked hard, and like I do think AJ really showed off his athleticism. Uh, athleticism here. You you talked about like the drop kick spot where he does the flip. Uh, he did you know that cool, uh, that spot I like he does. I like that he does when um Roddy's climbing back in the ring and um AJ chooses that point to do a moonsault as the guys entering back through the middle ropes and you know a thing i always noticed in in aj matches that i think separated him for a lot of the other really athletic guys of this era was he also had that physicality that a lot of guys didn't because not only is he doing the really cool athletic stuff but he's um you know like there's a moment where he hits a lariat on strong and it's so hard you can see like the sweat just flying off of strong's body which again so many of the really cool athletic high spot guys at this point were very skinny flippy guys where I think one of the things that made Styles so special for that era was he could give you all of that, but then he could also just paste a guy like that, too. And it was just, you know, that was a combination a lot of guys didn't have back then. But I think that my thing with this match was it was just kind of missing kind of any emotional stakes or really story. And sometimes matches are good enough to overcome that. And while I thought this match was good, it wasn't like, so, Oh my God, I can't believe this great where I didn't notice that this match kind of like, you know, didn't really have much to going in the way of face heel or telling a story or, you know, certainly it wasn't about a feud and it wasn't building to a feud. And, um, but it was still enjoyable just for the action. I also thought it was an interesting thing to see after uh, we had just seen Ares and Jericho because that was a match where, you know, the the veteran gives um, the rookie like 70% of the match. And this was a match where Styles kind of dominates strong at first. And just when I thought he was like, um, oh, he's kind of eating up Roderick, then the match becomes more even back and forth. But it definitely was not a match. It was, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It was just a different way to go where rather than – you know, AJ just giving the guy like everything and then winning at the very end. It was like, no, we're going to have this be a much more even competitive match. And I'm going to have parts where I dominate. But Matt, before I throw it to you, I think the one story and, and uh, Joe, you mentioned it, um, you know, years later, I, I believe it was when AJ um, left TNA and worked in New Japan in the Indies. There was a, 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 a crappy period of time where, um, 
a couple guys got unlucky enough to uh, get hurt with the Styles Clash. And obviously the weird thing about the Styles Clash is, you know, Styles is holding you upside down and he falls forwards basically. And in most wrestling spots, I believe wrestlers are taught, tuck your head, you know, bend it forwards. You want to absorb all the impact from a bump on your back or your belly well, usually your back if you're tucking your head, obviously, and you don't. But you don't want your head to rattle around. You don't want your brain to smash around your skull. You don't want to jar your neck, all that stuff. And the one thing about the Styles Clash is it's one of the rare wrestling moves where you're not supposed to tuck your head. If you if you tuck your head, you might catch it on the ring canvas and really hurt yourself, maybe even break your neck. And we saw the apparently. I, I mean, I've heard Styles as you should, tells everyone before he wrestles them, like, do not tuck your head on the Styles Clash. And we saw, like, in New Japan, Yoshihashi did, did try to tuck his head, and he broke his neck. And we saw, I believe, on that tour of that era of, of AJ Styles, Roderick Strong tucked his head and really hurt his neck. And I thought, and going back, I did not remember, this is a match years before that time where Roderick hurt his neck, and he does the same thing. He tucks his head, and luckily it did not catch on the map. But if you watch this match, he basically takes the Styles Clash like on top of his head, like he kind of takes on the crown of his head because he tucked his head. And he is really lucky he did not break his neck on this show all those years earlier. And I was, it was, it was Matt, this was almost like when we saw... um Nigel McGuinness do the getting my head rammed into the post until I bleed spot on a random 2003 Ring of Honor show where it's like, I didn't know this happened more than once, but I, it, it did. So, um, what do you think about the match? And did you notice that too? How weird that was? Well, the funny thing is like, you know, because I paid so much more attention to this era of ROAs and other eras, I actually don't know about the other one that you're talking about. Um, that was the more famous one. Yeah. Yeah. When was that? I, I, it was, I think, you know, during his Ring of Honor run after TNA, when you know he was working New Japan and Ring of Honor and the Indies yeah. before, yeah. you know, post TNA pre WWE. Yeah, so I wasn't paying as much attention at that point, and um, so, but I remember this very much, like, like, oh man, like he took that Styles Clash right on his head, like I, I so he was pretty, he was badly injured the second time. Um, I, I think it was worse than this. Like, it was more of a conversation thing, and also because I forget which came first, but between that and the Yoshihashi thing, there was a few people that were saying there was definitely some conversation of like AJ Styles is unsafe. Look at him, like the the Styles Clash is a dangerous move, even though it. I mean, looking at history, he's done like a bajillion times. Yeah, yeah, like, and it's a very safe move if you just don't tuck your. And I think he was just unlucky enough that a couple of people forgot that right around the same time and got hurt. You know, well, I think, like, you know, this is sort of a situation where he goes into the Styles Clash quickly, and I wonder yeah. if, like, the way to avoid that is just, like, take a second, like, take a beat before you actually do the Styles Clash, so the guy gets a minute to, like, oh, yeah, the Styles Clash, I gotta just not tuck, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. whereas, like, when it's just, like, you boom, 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 I'm into the move, like, people just kind of revert to their instincts. I don't mean, I'm not a wrestler, I don't know, I'm talking out my ass, but, like, makes sense, right? Um, yeah. Um, as far as the match, I'm... Kind of, I guess I'm in the middle of Joe and you. Like, I thought this was really, really good. And I, um, you know, and I probably, and I would say it's probably the match of the night. And I, this match got a lot of buzz at the time, too. And I remember being very excited to see it. And so I did have pretty high expectations to watch it again. And maybe it was slightly less good than I remembered, but still very good. Um, like, like you mentioned, like the, the bad, the, the bad about it was it didn't have like a, you know, a real particular storyline other than like two athletic guys and one's an up and comer and one is an established star. And in ROH, that's fine. Like that, that's a storyline, you know, like that you don't, I don't think you need necessarily to have it much more than that, but you know, to make, to get to like a true level of greatness, you know, you probably want a little bit more than that. Um, 
And um, yeah, it did meander a little bit, as ROH matches sometimes did at this point, but the athleticism was just so good. You know, I think Roderick's push is going so well. You know what I mean? Like, for a guy that really doesn't have a character at all, and really, he probably really wouldn't have a character for a few years, really, until he turns heel. It's going really well, like, just because his ring work is so good. Um, I remember late in the year, there was sort of a debate between, like, who's the ROH MVP of 2005? Is it Gibson or is it Strong? And they have that match right before Gibson leaves. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I don't know what I would say. I'm really liking Strong's matches. I, I think he's just, and I think that his, um, like, you, you know, you can see with each match him becoming a bigger and bigger star. Um, to the crowd and you know and I feel like he's just he's the the uh the guys he wrestles the more established guys give him so much respect because he's so good in the ring and I you know I I don't know if I was ever more impressed with strong I'm not saying strong never got better but I don't know that I ever was more impressed with him than I was watching this 2005 run because he just he just delivers so often and you know he's he's not a guy who botches stuff very much. Obviously, the one thing he botched here happened to be the bump that he took in the in the final <laughs> in the final move that actually made it look more devastating. Um, but yeah, and, and but you know you could just like this is definitely a booking um, uh, decision that is clearly working. As Strong just gets more and more over, becomes a bigger and bigger star, and gets more and more respect. So I think that elevates the match also for me. But just athletically, it was really good. And, um, yeah, I think it's a match worth watching. And that finish, which I believe, Joe, you tweeted a clip of that finish, right? Uh, not too long yes. ago. Yeah. I, mean, I will retweet it uh, when the show comes out. Yeah. Great. Because everyone needs to see it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a great finish. Um, despite the, uh, the awkward landing and it seems like strong was okay. And maybe he wasn't okay. And he was just making random prank phone calls to people outside because <laughs> he, he was brain was so scrambled. He thought he was the jerky boys. That's my theory. Matt, as soon as you said prank phone calls, I was literally thinking, what kind of jerky boys reference could I make? So there's a reason we're doing this podcast. Guys. That's right. Things like that. That's um, right. You know, Tom oh, Pettengill but- used to have like a whole thing in his radio show where him and his co-host did uh, prank calls. And I know this because my friend had one of their prank call CDs and I remember listening to it and I was like, <laughs> this is not the jerky boys. But this guy, <laughs> But this guy's from wrestling. So, hey, good enough. I just, for some reason, imagine you just sitting somewhere like in your living room sedately and just calmly saying, this is not the jerky He's <laughs> like very unsatisfied. We, uh, we, we, we'd flip between that and um, that those CDs and the uh, Adam Sandler, um, they're all going to laugh at you CD and um, play at a medium pace several times in <laughs> way, the, <laughs> and uh, because, you know, we're kids and that's so funny. He says uh, gross stuff and that's all. <laughs> So one note from The Observer about this match, uh, Dave wrote, AJ Styles versus Roderick Strong had what was reported as the best match on the show with Styles winning with the Styles Clash. Heat was awesome and great work. There was some booing of Styles during the match, but both got standing ovations when it was over. It's pretty clear Strong is moving up to the main level with his work and a unique style built around his different backbreakers. I just brought this up because I'm kind of creating a case file of... Doing, you know, I honestly do a lot of research for a fair amount of research for these shows, and I just can't tell you how many times in 2005 Dave mentions that big things are coming for Roderick Strong. It seems like almost every time he references Roderick Strong, it's like big plans for him coming up in the next few months in Ring of Honor. And to be fair, 
he is, but yeah, like he is. The, like like there's a point later in the year I think we'll get to it's much later down the line where Dave says something like Roderick Strong's on the short list. It's going to be shocking if he doesn't win the world title in the next year. And it's like, okay, Dave, like whatever you're being told, it's gotten a little too hot here. Well, yeah, that's I mean, not yeah, I mean that 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 one is is weird because like. R- ROH is not a company where there's like one of the guys who's going to win the title. Like, you know, exactly. a, you know, guys win titles and they hold it for a really long time. And a lot of yeah. people, you know, it was like very old school that way. So, yeah. I mean, it is weird how long it took for Roderick to win the title and how, you know, kind of his title run was a transitionary, a transitional run, but transitionary. Nice word. <laughs> um, but, um, but like, yeah, it's not, it's not surprising that he didn't win the belt in the next like year or two. So uh, next up, we go backstage to join Gary Michael Capetta is intermission. And so while Joe Gagne is staring at Roderick Strong making a phone call, this was also happening. Uh, Gary says, it doesn't look likely that James Gibson will wrestle tonight. He then turns his attention to uh, Lacey's Angels, who are standing right beside him. Uh, Lacey and Cloudy are pissed at Deranged and Cheech. Cloudy says that those two have lost three times in a row now. Lacey says if they don't start winning soon, she's going to have to make some changes in personnel. So foreshadowing is what we call that. Well, Izzy's, ar- Izzy's already gone. Exactly. I like that he's not even acknowledged. It's just like Izzy's, Izzy is a ghost now. But um, uh, that brings us to the Ring of Honor pure title match. Samoa Joe successfully defends the title when he defeats Jimmy Rave via pinfall in 17 minutes, 28 seconds after he hit the muscle buster. Um, I thought this was compared to the last match, which had no structure. I thought this was a very classic match structure in the sense of Joe, the babyface, he dominates the first half of the match basically to show that, Hey, when everything is even, this face is clearly on another level than this heel. The heel ends up getting the advantage from a few cheating things in the middle of the match first. Uh, um, when Joe's going for an Olay kick, Jade Chung gets shoved in the way to stop that. Soon after, uh, Rave gets to hit a low blow. And then Rave spends a bunch of the match doing the exact same, I'm pulling out my shoelace and I'm going to choke the, my opponent with it over and over again spot that he did with CM Punk a few shows ago. Just kind of start their feud. Does that for a while. And then the final... Th- portion of the match is again in that classic structure of the face basically overcomes all the cheating all the odds because he's just that good and he wins the match clean anyway doesn't matter that even though joe has used all his rope breaks and even gotten a warning for throwing a punch so one more punch even would have been a dq doesn't matter he overcomes all the odds and wins um i thought it was a good match i know some people watching this match were disappointed because you know it wasn't like a Event. You know, with Samoa Joe matches, the, the expectations are rightfully very high. I thought this was more, again, another match, like three and a quarter stars. It was one of those matches. It was kind of like, it's funny, like, I'm kind of complaining at this match for the opposite of the last match where I'm saying I like that other match, which I like probably a little bit strong, AJ, a little more than this. But my complaint was it didn't really have anything like story-wise or psychology to it. This match is more like it told a really good story, but it didn't have that super exciting last gear. But you know, not every match has to be that, but I did feel like probably that's what other people were also feeling was missing with this match. Um, like, especially the first half of the match, it felt very much like Jimmy Rave was just being a blank canvas for Joe to hit every one of his signature moves that you see all the time from him, which, I mean, they're cool moves, but really just felt like, okay, I'm going to do this, then I usually do this, then I usually do this. But then Joe did this, ma- and this match, to be fair, I will say he did break out 
a couple moves that I thought were cool that you don't see from him. Like he did this running knee, but not the running knee he does in the corner where he kind of runs up the turnbuckles and hits the knee. This was like just running the ropes in the middle of the ring and he went like almost horizontal and just hit like this flying knee to rave, which looked really cool. And then late in the match, he does a couple big roundhouse kicks to rave and he shouts Hashimoto and he hits a big like impact DDT. And I guess we should mention this show happened after Shinya Hashimoto had died. Yeah, just a few the days Jap- after. Yeah. Yeah. And the Japanese wrestling legend, obviously one of Joe's first, probably his first ever like major employment of note was zero one Shinya Hashimoto's promotion. So obviously, you know, paying tribute to someone that probably meant a fair bit to him in some ways. And, um, I, I feel like that kind of stuff was honestly the most notable part of the match. Um, Matt, I want your opinions on the match, and also Matt to continue a long-standing through the years tradition. Was this the first show where someone threw a roll of toilet paper in the ring? Because Jimmy even angrily throws it back, and one of them, what I was thinking, is that Stringers? It was white, I think, and it was pretty thick. Matt, please tell me this was uh, the show. I so when I first saw it, I was like. Maybe, is that, maybe that's toilet paper, and I rewound it a couple times, and like, mm, I don't think it was toilet paper, man. I really don't. Like, I, 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 I really think when you when the toilet paper starts flying, I think you will see um, it look different <laughs> than than this. I am sorry, I, I, you okay. know, Joe. May, maybe you can uh, dispute me on this, but I'm pretty sure these were still streamers that Jimmy Rave was treating as a sign of disrespect. Yeah, it looked like streamers to me. I don't want to interrupt the storyline anyway. It's the the best feud of uh, 2021. (laughs) I'll never get a job at Charmin because apparently I can't tell toilet paper for the fucking life of me. You just like little, like, skinny toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to admit, guys, I haven't wiped in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) what's it look like i forget but uh uh, you know for me i've had a shortage long before covid of of toilet paper but anyway just keep keep, keep talking about this that that that, that'll be good um um you know it's funny because you mentioned like this match had a very classic structure and i kind of wrote the same thing like it certainly wasn't a classic match but it definitely had that classic heel work from jimmy raven i thought it was entertaining on that level i um i do think that maybe with the um the way they're building up Rave, that Joe maybe dominated him a little too much early on. You know, it sort of made him feel like a total punk that no, you know, no CM Punk reference intended. That <laughs> um, you know, that really could only get any advantage by cheating. And I, I don't think that Jimmy Rave should have been portrayed at that level at this point. Like he should have been a guy that could have held his own at least a little bit, um, and then you know, use the cheating to really take the advantage. But. Um, it was interesting what they were doing with Jade Chung here because obviously they still did the horrible stuff with you know Nana you know um, pushing her around the ring. There was a moment where Joe was going to hit the ole ole on Ray for the second time, and Nana just throws uh, Jade in front of him so that um, Joe, you know Joe you know kind of had to like move her out of the way, you know, which is considered a new low. And I guess you know you could say theoretically it was, but there was the interesting spot at the beginning when they're actually on their way to the ring. And you see that Jade Chung is smiling and waving to the audience members before she kneels down to become a footstool. And I, I thought that was interesting. Like, I guess that must have been intentional, right? Like, oh, act more yeah. like a baby face so that the crowd likes you more. I, I don't know what the deal is with that because, you know, you did previously have members of the crowd that cheered on when the, they abused Jade Chung. Um, but, um, 
you know, obviously we'll talk about the post-match where they, you know, where they advance that angle a little bit more. But yeah, the match itself, I thought, I thought, you know, the, the fact that it did have that classic structure made it pretty entertaining. You know, Joe's offense is always good. And then, you know, all the distraction, you know, Rave distracts the ref and Nana chokes at Joe in the corner. You know, Rave breaks a, a choke by, by biting Joe's hand, uh, things like that. Um, it, it is funny. I mean, maybe not funny, maybe more like horrible how the announcers kept yelling that the camera shouldn't show Nana abusing Jay Chung as the camera very explicitly lingered on Nana abusing mm-hmm. Jay Chung. Um, but besides the Chung stuff, I, I enjoyed the match. And I, um, you know, like you said, it didn't go into this really like high level top ROH style match. But, you know, I think Joe is trying to work these, uh, these pure title matches all differently. Like, you know, the Aries match was probably, you know, the, as far as the recent ones, probably the most classic in terms of just like working like a, a high impact match. And whereas the Cabana one was a little bit more story oriented, and this one's a little more story oriented. And, um, I think that's fine. You know, I, um, I, I really didn't have any major complaints about the match. It wasn't great, but it was good for what they wanted it to be. So, Joe, two questions. One, what did you think about the match? And two, when uh, uh, Joe screamed out Hashimoto and hit the DDT, did you look at that uh, tower hacker bomb guy again and give another little nod like, yeah, you and me, we know what he's referencing. <laughs> no, I don't know where that guy that guy was in the crowd. I found that Hashimoto spot actually genuinely affecting. Like It was like yeah, it was you nice. know, he's calling on the spirit of his mentor to help him vanquish this weaselly heel, the complete antith- uh, antithesis of everything Hashimoto stood for was kind of my enduring memory of this match and yeah i thought the the structure of this match was great because people want to see rave get beat up and uh samojo can beat him up and there was one spot where rave i think ducked a kick and literally yelled ha at joe like "Ah, i fooled (laughs) you and then just got kicked in the face again and it was uh it was uh it was tremendous and um you know joe burned through his rope breaks pretty quickly and at the time i was thinking like oh if they have Jimmy win the title by DQ, like oh that would be tremendous heat, but they didn't they didn't go that way. And clearly, what they did with the pure title worked, you know, yeah, going yeah. With, with Nigel. But uh, no, I, I thought it was a good, entertaining match. And uh, <laughs> I remember, like afterwards, like Joe shakes Rave's hand, who's unconscious, and the announcer's like, "Well, it counts." And I'm like, "Well, uh, should it?" Because you know, <laughs> I, I don't. I'm out <laughs> wait for the guy to wake up or what? It didn't seem quite right. And uh, we also got a good discussion of uh, centrifugal force during this match, so that made it uh, a little educational as well. So. That's right. Gabe was, practicing, Gabe was practicing his pronunciation of the word, and um, and uh, and Prezak, uh, said it was uh, said it was correct. Um, but um, the, I, I agree with you about the rope break stuff. I like that um, that Joe had that rope break disadvantage, and Rave lost, even though he only used one of his rope breaks. I thought that was. That was pretty good because you know they, you know because it's it's easy to do the same structure in every match where they, everyone uses all their rope breaks. Yeah. Um. So I, I appreciated that. And I, yeah, and I think it just added to the story they were trying to tell here, which is like Joe's so good, you could stack all the odds against him, all the cheating, all the rope breaks used, and it doesn't matter that Rave has more rope breaks. Like he's still going to beat him. Um. Although, like you said, it did he did really dominate Rave in a lot of ways in this match, but um. 
And just to do the centrifugal force thing, for people that do not have not watched the show and do not know what we talk about, another cool spot early in this match is uh, they're trading arm ringers to start, and Joe eventually gets out of one, not by using a rope break, but he just swings Rave around and around the ring until Rave just flies through the ropes to the floor. And Prezak on commentary says something like, oh, that's a use of centrifugal force. And Gabe, for some reason, is just tickled at the phrase usage of the phrase centrifugal force and he just like has to repeat it and you can almost hear the smile like oh that's centrifugal force like oh but so and, and just since we are talking about pronunciation it is centripetal force with a t oh i did not know that that's why matt's the teacher <laughs> yes but that, yes to call, like me matt, call, who call me matt striker yeah <laughs> So there is an after-match um, segment, but I, before we get to that, because it involves Matt Hardy, I think this is the point of the show where, guys, I wrote in my notes. I always have very detailed notes. I wrote my notes. This is – it kind of makes me laugh looking at this. This is where I wrote, wrote my notes, just in all capital letters, explain Matt Hardy. So I feel <laughs> like since he is the uh, – kind of the star of the show and the most notable thing, and – even though I realize a lot of people listening to this will know what you know, like why he was special at this point, I feel like this is kind of the point where we need to give backstory. Because one, there probably might be occasionally now or in the future some young person that will listen to the show that do, does not remember or did not live through what was going on. I mean, we do have a couple people listening to the show that did not watch the shows at the time, and we have to accept this was 16 years ago. And unfortunately, gentlemen, we are getting old. So uh, I'm just—I don't have yes, any notes. quote, quote unquote, getting. <laughs> hey, you, you let me live in my fantasy, man. But um, so I don't really have any extensive notes of this. I'm just going to try to go off this off the top of my head. I am sure there are better summaries of this. But basically, in 2004, 2005, I would say Matt Hardy was kind of like one of the poster children for the idea of a guy who, quote unquote, was always more over than his push. Like he was getting Matt was always kind of the guy who was considered, you know, more talented than the level WWE saw him at, who always got reactions that were probably bigger than the level he was at. And um, in 2004, he suffered, I believe it was a bad knee injury. And so he ended a feud he was having. Um, with Kane over his real life girlfriend Lita, he I believe he lost a match at SummerSlam over the rights to Lita and the, one of those classic wrestling stipulations. And he proceeded to get surgery that would take him out of action for almost a year. And so he's at home rehabbing that injury. And his real life girlfriend Lita, also a WWE wrestler, continued to stay on the road as often happens. And Apparently, during this time, she had an affair with a friend of theirs who was also a wrestler, a little guy named Edge. Apparently, Edge's then-wife, who I believe they're now divorced, you know, Edge is on a different wife now. Um, I like the I like the way that you just phrased that. Edge is on, on a, a different a, wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe I know that sounds really almost sexist. I did not mean it that way, but just he, I, I just wanted to clear up. Just again, this is not this. You know, this is not Beth Phoenix. This is somebody else. But apparently, she discovers the affair. She tells Matt Hardy. Matt Hardy. Roots around and finds like a second photo of Lita. He confirms it. I forget how it got out, but the news did eventually get out to the public. Um, I believe Matt Hardy at some points on his own website back then he used to post would famously wrote Adam Copeland is feces. That's the exact word he used. I believe I, I remember that. And so it gets out. 
fans start making noise at shows. It becomes, a, you know, a big brouhaha because it's a kind of a crazy story. And Matt Hardy gets released. Not Lita, not Edge. Not that I'm saying any of them should have been released, but Matt Hardy is the one that is released. Um, at the time, I think WWE said it was for some other random reason, but everyone just assumed it was because he was kind of bringing this up and making it public or inflaming it at the very least. And it was causing the crowd to react against a wrestler. They did not want them to boo. Cause obviously WWE was much more in the edge business than the Matt Hardy business. Although edge was a heel. Uh, yeah, but maybe they don't want that kind of heat either way. They, they released him. So at that yeah. point, um, Matt Hardy, I would say was probably one of the, as crazy as it is to say in 2005, one of them hot for a short window of time, one of the hottest, most talked about wrestlers. Cause he had like this perfect storm of one, you know, he is the subject of this crazy, like weird love, real life love triangle where it's all notable, famous wrestlers involved Two, you know, he, it, it just furthers the narrative that had been around him for years, which is he's kind of this guy that's mistreated by the WWE and not valued where he's the guy who gets fired out of all this. And he's the guy who was cheated on. And then three people forget, you know, he was, when he got fired, I think it was like in April of 2005, he was just a couple months away from being, or two or three months away from being able to wrestle again for the first time in almost a year. So you also just have the excitement of, oh shit, we haven't seen Matt Hardy in a long time and he should be getting ready to return. So, And, and can as, I, um, and, and I, and oh, I know on. you were probably going to mention this, but like, if I can give one example of just how hot he was to, um, especially fans with any sort of insider knowledge, but eventually it bled over to the entire fan base basically at this point, was that at ECW One Night Stand um, in June of 2005 when Matt Hardy was still, you know, not, you know, you know no, not on the WWE roster, hadn't appeared anywhere yet. One of the biggest moments of the entire night, like the, that, you know, that everyone talked about was when Paul Heyman was cutting a promo on Edge and all he had to say was, quote, Matt friggin' Hardy, without any, like, any context, any explanation, anything added to it, just saying his name to Edge was one of the biggest moments of that entire huge event. Like, that shows you what a big deal Matt Hardy was at this point. Yeah, because there was a point, you know, where WWE, it wasn't part of an angle, legit released Matt Hardy. And so that was like, not like part of an angle. That was supposed to be like, oh, classic Paul Heyman saying the things no one else would let you, you know, no one else would say on the air. And it, right. yeah, it absolutely was like, oh my God, you know, he's bringing up Matt Hardy after they already just released him. But yeah, and Edge's uh, reaction was pretty classic. I, <laughs> I, you know, it's, I forget now at this point if they, if like we found out they already pretty much were planning on bringing him back at that point. I would guess probably, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. So, and that brings us to uh, some reporting about what happened with Matt Hardy. So, first off, we'll go to the Observer. He, uh, Matt Hardy's debut in Ring of Honor, we didn't bring it up on that show because I was saving it for this show, I believe. Was it was his debut was announced at Manhattan Mayhem, and uh, Dave from the Observer at the time. Matt Hardy debuts on July 16th in Woodbridge, Connecticut, against the returning Christopher Daniels. The Hardy announcement got a pop, said to be equivalent to when they announced Jushin Liger coming in last year. But was Hardy it a be- was it a just incredible pop? Is what I always will want to know. <laughs> exactly, Jushin Liger pop, and that's pretty good. Just incredible pop. Now that's incredible but um so uh dave writes hardy will be working a lot of dates for ring of honor basically he'll be working here whenever he doesn't have a high paying gig as he's getting some european bookings for far more than he can get in the u.s so he probably will be going there a lot 
Then another observer, Dave, added more information. He wrote, Matt Hardy will start wrestling full-time on the indie scene in mid-July. He's getting $1,500 to $3,000 per shot at this point and is heavily in demand. He's already agreed to something like 10 dates with Ring of Honor. On the indie scene, you also get your hotels paid for and are usually taken everywhere you want to go by people involved with the show. Plus, you could do Polaroids, and Hardy will do very well with that. So don't cry for him financially. There's a very good chance he can clear more wrestling by not being in WWE like Raven did. But there won't be any big merchandising checks. Generally speaking, the guys coming off WWE TV that are most in demand early charge the highest prices early because they can get it and lower their price six months or so later. So... At this point, like, you know, Matt Hardy only ends up working three shows, but, um, yeah, like, the news at first made it sound like the, Matt Hardy was going to be a full-time guy, basically. Like, Ring of Honor had big plans for him. They were going to book him long-term. Um, in fact, Ring of Honor on their website even at this time wrote, Matt Hardy told Ring of Honor officials that he is currently looking forward to his three scheduled Ring of Honor shows, July 16th, August 12th, and August 13th. Hardy says he is coming with something to prove, and he can't wait to wrestle with no limitations. Hardy says the first three Ring of Honor shows will be like a trial series, and he wants to take on top competitors each night to prove he belongs in Ring of Honor. If Hardy is happy with his performances in Ring of Honor, he will commit to more shows. So... Okay, so all of this sounds okay. Matt Hardy's going to be full-time. And then the Monday before this Ring of Honor show we're covering today, Matt Hardy attacks Edge in a backstage segment on Raw. And then most notably, and, and for those who did not see the segment or don't remember, it was supposed to be like this idea like, oh, the cameras just caught it. You know, like they were trying to make it seem as much as WWE was willing to let anything seem this way, like a work shoot. Like, you know, Matt Hardy just invaded Raw, although it was pretty evident to everyone once this happened that – this meant Matt Hardy was back with WWE. But one thing Matt Hardy said, he said something to the effect of, like, as he's being dragged away by security, like, you know, oh, you want to see me in a real wrestling company, you can see me in Ring of Honor. And I believe that may have been the first time a wrestler ever referenced Ring of Honor on WWE TV, like years yeah. before CM Punk pro- pipe bomb. It, it was. He was – I remember I remember he was just like – you know, he was sort of like half on mic, half off. He was like, see, coming to Ring of Honor, ROH, you know, like, like, like you know, just sort of like getting yeah. it in there when he could. Yeah, it was actually – fairly well done yeah and um the observer wrote about that segment hardy grabbed the mic and mentioned something about ring of honor as i'm told the lines about adam copeland lita and wwe were all scripted ahead of time but even the writers were surprised about him mentioning ring of honor so maybe maybe i mean maybe that's dave not getting the right information or maybe matt just thought that would add more credibility or maybe he thought he was doing a solid for ring of honor but it was like I think the first mention ever of Ring of Honor on WWE TV, you know. And then finally, before we actually get to this post-match segment and the match, um, we got one more note from the Observer where Dave wrote, "Matt Hardy will be appearing." He wrote this I think after uh, the Raw segment, maybe. Um, Matt Hardy will be appearing on the July 16th show in Woodbridge, Connecticut, for Ring of Honor and two other Ring of Honor dates. Gabe Sapolsky was one of the first people to figure out Hardy for sure wasn't going to TNA because even though they had agreed to Hardy's price in recent weeks, Hardy had refused to confirm any Ring of Honor dates past the first three, but kept assuring him that no matter what, he would do the three dates. So. Yeah, obviously, that's obviously a, a very easy way to tell usually if a guy's going to WWE, if all of a sudden they just start saying like, oh, I can't work anymore past this date. Because usually most other promotions, especially even at this time, like TNA would have let him work Ring of Honor. And if all of a sudden he just says, uh, I can forget about the 10. I can only do three. That tells you something. But I would like to add I would like to add a little bit more about Matt Hardy, if I may. Go ahead. 
Absolutely. I um so so this was an era where like I still mostly like WWE. Like it had a lot of the same flaws and I knew about them and I didn't like them and like but I still like overall was like hoping that you know they they still felt like they had potential of doing some things well whereas now it's sort of like all right well whatever i'm writing off wwe like i don't care what they do it's never gonna it's never gonna be good and i didn't have that attitude at this point so like i don't know about you guys but like i really wanted matt hardy to go back to wwe and work a feud with edge um before it happened like would you say that you would like did you want matt hardy to go back to wwe at this point yeah, I, I see. Here's the here's the funny thing. And Joe, after this, I want your thoughts on Matt Hardy because I realize we're, we've been gabbing a lot. But um, I'll just say, like, I was really disappointed watching all this back, Matt, because I really thought at this time my memory was like once Matt Hardy got back in WWE, I thought like this is going to be what changes Matt Hardy's career. Like he's going to yeah. be not if not a main eventer, like one step behind the main event level. And after the Edge feud, like he. I mean, he ends up leaving WWE in a few years anyway well, after that. Like, Well, yeah, that, that you, was – sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, like, it's kind of sad because at this time, like, going to what you said, yeah, not, I agree. Not only did I want Matt Hardy to go back, I thought if he did, like, the momentum behind this real-life stuff would be too hard for WWE to ignore or screw up. Well, well, this is the point that, I, that, I'm, that I'm getting to. But, but yeah, but Joe, before, before I do that, yeah, Joe, did you, did you want Matt Hardy to go back to WWE or were you already, like, screw WWE? I figured, you know, I felt he got a raw deal getting released, you know, knowing what happened. And if that's where he wanted to go, then, you know, I wanted whatever he wanted to do. I don't think, I don't know if he went back with the intent of getting you know, his ass kicked by Edge at SummerSlam so bad the ref had to stop it. But, uh, but you know, at the time it was like, you know, if this guy wants to go back, then yeah, because, you know, he, he got the short end of the stick, so to speak, in, in terms of that, so... Yeah, I would have been happy seeing him in Ring of Honor, but you know, I would have been happy seeing him go back too, getting a big run, which we kind of assumed he would he would get. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 was sort of what I was getting. Uh, sorry, did you want to say something, Trevor? No, I was just going to say what to what Joe said. Uh, Joe brought up a good point about like when Matt Hardy comes back, he loses like a big match, the first big match they have in the feud at SummerSlam in like pretty decisive way. And again, for those who weren't around for the feud or don't remember it, like. Matt did get a cup, I think one or two wins along the way in the middle of the feud, but that feud starts with a big decisive edge win as the heel. And it ends with, I think one of like the big anniversary Raws with Matt Hardy losing to edge in a match where the loser has to leave raw and go to SmackDown. So like, even that feud, like by the end of that feud, you're like, well, well, maybe this I is, didn't want Matt Hardy to come yeah. back. Well, this is the point that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm getting to like it, which is like, I really wanted Matt Hardy to go back. Like we all were like, okay, Matt Hardy's going to go back. He's going to be a big star. Like this feud's going to be awesome. And the this feud, the way it was booked so terribly, I feel like was like foreboding uh for almost everything you don't like about WWE over the following 16 years. You know, like they bring him back and they immediately basically put him in a situation to fail. Um he comes back and instead of like continuing to be the outsider, he walks out. Doesn't he like shake Vince McMahon's hand or something like that? And he's like, <laughs> Vince McMahon brought me back. And then he cuts this promo on Edge, which is like, I mean, this is probably actually Matt Hardy's fault, but maybe not. Um, where he's like, just this like this real bitter, like not sympathetic promo where he says he wants to wrestle Edge at SummerSlam, but he would prefer it if Edge died in a car accident before. <laughs> Do you remember that? I do not remember that yeah. part. Holy shit. And then Edge the 
Edge the following week cuts a backstage promo and just totally one-ups Matt Hardy. He says, um, he says, like, I don't want you to die in a car accident. I want you perfectly healthy for this SummerSlam match so I can destroy you myself. And it was like, you know, obviously that's like clearly a cooler thing to say, you know. And and then they booked the match where Edge just completely dominates. The match gets stopped after like a few minutes because Edge is kicking his ass so much. And then, yes, they have a more conventional cage match at the next pay-per-view where Matt Hardy wins with like a big leg drop off the top of the cage. Um but then after that, he's just a guy. And, you know, now that, that phrase, just a guy, is, you know, sort of cliche when it comes to WWE, where everyone just becomes just a guy in a matter of days or weeks um, once they, after they have a big debut or return. And I feel like it's just Hardy's, um, Hardy's whole plight is like just so emblematic of what's, what, what's wrong with WWE, which is they don't capitalize. They don't do the obvious thing to give the people what they want. They ruin everything. They, they remake everything in like whatever their agenda is. And like, yes, was pushing edge important for WWE at that time? Sure. But I don't think there's any reason that they couldn't have pushed Matt Hardy harder. The crowd wanted it. Like, and they did everything they could to make them not want it anymore. And that's something that they still do to this day. I mean, they did it before this too. You know, he's not, Hardy's not the first guy that they did that to, obviously, but I feel like it wasn't a given by 2005 that this is always what they would do. And I think after Matt Hardy, to me, it was like, all right, this is just what they do. And that's proven to be correct. So I think Matt Hardy's saga is like a good, um, it's a good symbol or a good metaphor for like a lot of what WWE does to ruin talent's momentum um, over, over the course of time. And I think, you know, you're, you're right. It like, it really bums me out to think back to it because they could have had something more with him. And I really don't think that Matt Hardy got to do much interesting at all until he went to TNA and developed the broken Matt character. Yeah. And honestly, I would say like, that's the only other time in his career he's ever been this hot as a singles act was the height of the broken mat stuff. Like I would say that was probably would be comparable to how hot he was here. Would, would you agree with that? Or yeah, um, like, I would say, I would say honestly, probably not. Like if you're talking about like, like, I mean, he, he was hot, but like, this was like, Oh man, like we need Matt Hardy. And yeah. like, I guess there was a moment where when people thought, Oh my God, broken Matt could come to, could come to WWE. And like, there was that whole thing where like, did they have the rights to use it? And they didn't at first and then they got them. But then of course, WWE didn't really know what to do with that either. So, um, so it didn't end up being much of anything there either. <laughs> the story of Matt Hardy really is like a guy who consistently got more over than his push. And no matter what he did or how over he got, WWE – like I don't think they – there are very few guys I think that had worked for WWE as long as Matt Hardy that WWE was that stubborn about. Like even guys like Brian Danielson, eventually they got a push. You know, maybe still not quite the push they deserve, but they eventually got – broke through at least some – level of resistance for WWE where you look at Matt Hardy it was like no matter what when we really look back at the career the way we just did like no matter what that guy did he was always going to have the same spot like no matter what I am convinced yeah and, um, and, and, and you know and maybe and you know again maybe part of it is that like when Hardy did have a chance to cut that promo on Raw even though they already did sort of cut cut out like some of what made him cool as like the outsider by having Vince bring him back but like his promo was not good 
And, you know, yeah. how much of that was his fault? How much of that was what the writers told him to say? I don't know. But, like, that, I mean, you can't take that. You can't deny. Like, he yeah. got totally outclassed on the mic by Edge there. So, I mean, there's something to that. But obviously, like, that didn't matter. They just, they just played off to play to his strengths and let him be edgy, pun, pun intended, and <laughs> the outsider. Like, that, that, and, you know, the match at SummerSlam being given much more of a, um, a highlight and much, and much more time and Hardy winning, you know, like that would have, it would have been different, um, at least for a little while. Yeah. So that, that's obviously a lot of backstory on Matt Hardy, but I, I do think it was important to give out because he was the selling point of the show. He was the thing that was talked about a ton in the newsletters. This show got a lot of coverage from the newsletters more than a Ring of Honor show would because of that. So it was the reason why apparently I, I think the last show in this area was reported by the Observer to have drawn like 500. This one draws 900. So, I mean, he is the story of this show. So. After the match we just covered a while ago, the uh, Joe Rave match, uh, Joe goes to the back, which leaves Nana, Jade Chung, and Jimmy Rave alone in the ring. Nana grabs the mic and he tells Rave that he signed him to this match to prove what a great wrestler he was. And Nana sounds almost angry. You think, oh, maybe he's going to yell at Rave. And then Nana goes, and Jade Chung ruined it for him. He starts berating Jade. He pulls her around by the hair and orders her to serve as a footstool so Rave can leave. Jade grabs the mic and she, st- she starts to say she can't. So like Matt, you were pointing out earlier, like playing a little more to the fans here. She's actually kind of, you know, standing up for herself a little bit. But Nana just grabs her. He throws her out of the ring to a lot of booze. Uh, Rave does use her as a footstool, but apparently she can't support him as we see Rave fall. Although the camera that they angle they chose, you can't really see what happens. You just kind of see Rave take a tumble, but Chong is kind of blocked by the ring. But- and, and, and I just do, I do want to mention like what Nana does when, when, when Jay Chung says no, he grabs her by the hair and throws her out of the ring, like aggressively. Yeah. Like it's, you know, as, as bad as what Nana's done to her so far has been, that, uh, you know, I feel like that's one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, the manhandling is pretty egregious, uh, yeah, on this show. Um, Nana brings uh, Jade back in the ring at this point. He grabs her, he yells at her again. He And then at this point, he rears back like he's going to slap her, which is something, it's like the one line they haven't crossed yet in this angle. And at that point, the lights go out. And when the lights come back on, Matt Hardy is standing in the ring wearing a shirt that says us versus them. I think like the mattehardyshow.com on the back, which was his big website at the time. And he gets a huge pop from the crowd. The embassy immediately run away as Matt poses. Um, Matt we, we, had, we had a listener say that he um, he uh, he was they were they gave out us versus them shirts for the crowd to wear. Um, I did not see that. Um, I don't know if you noticed that in the crowd. Joe, did you get your hands on a sweet us versus them T-shirt? No, I remember I arrived late. I actually had to stand the whole show, which was not uh, the most pleasant given how hot it was. So maybe I missed out on the free shirts. Because <laughs> Matt was definitely trying to do a lot of, especially probably he probably started some of the stuff before he knew he was going back to WWE. A lot of like viral stuff, a lot of internet stuff. He had his own message board. He was very early in on like the promote yourself online away from the official WWE brand game with stuff like that. So, um Matt grabs the mic at this point. The crowd launches into a loud fuck Vince chant, which Vince, I mean, Matt nods along to. Uh, Matt says, the moment you've been waiting for has arrived. Matt Hardy, version one, the sensei of Mattitude, is in ROH. There's a lot of cheers, but I think at this point I also hear just a couple of boos. 
The crowd gives a huge Matt, I mean, hearty chant, though. And Matt says, it's great to be in front of fans that are passionate about what they love and to be in a locker room full of guys who have passion for this business and have talent rather than 300-pound muscle heads Johnny Ace hired. We then get a loud fuck Johnny Ace chant. And, guys, I just have to say at this point, it's pretty funny that um, still all these years later we are talking about Johnny Ace firing people and – in WWE, it's still happening. Um, we we're doing this today. Bray Wyatt got fired. But anyway, moving on. Matt says, if Vince McMahon and those other assholes want to learn how to put on a good wrestling show, maybe they should watch a few Ring of Honor DVDs. There's a big Ring of Honor chat here, which Matt joins them in. Matt says he's not here to talk about that piece of shit, Adam Copeland, or that whore, Amy Dumas. He didn't come out here to talk. He came here with his working boots on. Matt says this is his first real match in about a year, and he's facing the fallen angel, Christopher Daniels. He thanks the crowd for letting him talk in the ring, and he says he loves them. Crowd gives big cheers and a hearty chant. So a couple of notes I just want to give on this. First is I actually thought overall, even though I do have to admit all the stuff, like, look, I admit – I think we would all would, can understand, like, someone cheated on us, we'd be pretty pissed. A lot of this feud, even at the time, I remember, before I was as, like, maybe as socially mature as I am now, it was always uncomfortable, especially, like, you could tell during this feud how uncomfortable Lita was to have her, like, personal life played out in front of the crowd. And like anything with wrestling at this point, like, a huge misogynistic overtone, um, you know, like, you know, Matt, you know, like, people with the crowd was mad at Edge, but, like... You know, they really took it out on Lita. Yeah, and, and obviously Edge benefited a lot more from this than I think Lita ever did. Like, yeah. And um, not that that would have even made it right, but she got like none of – very little of the benefits and a lot of the negatives here. And so I always did cringe like when he's leaning so much into the whore shit. I mean like again, yeah. I, I realize – you know, I would be mad if, if someone cheated on me, especially if it turned into this giant public embarrassment. But – it's still uncomfortable viewing. I, I feel like that oh, verbiage is like it's it's sort of symbolic of um, you know what made Matt Hardy's promo bad too, which is just like this like he was just too like he just presented himself as almost like too much of like a um, a um, an immature teenager in terms of deal. Like again, I'm not like judging his like real life reaction to it, but like the promos that he cut are like. You know, it's not like cool or like a guy you want to get behind. He's just like he's mad and he's calling people names and he wants them to die in car crashes. And it's just like uh, this isn't like the most like badass way of dealing with this situation as a character. Again, like I don't want to make it sound like I'm like saying like, you know, like it's obviously a traumatic thing to go through as a person. But I'm talking about just the way the character was presented. I don't think it was the coolest presentation, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I, I, I will say, I, I think a, a point, I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I, I feel it's almost like when he says that kind of stuff, or I forgot the car crash thing, obviously, but I feel like when he ever says that stuff, it's kind of like he doesn't say it with charisma. Like, it comes off almost too real in a bad way, like, yeah. almost like the angry text you would send someone at like three in the morning that would then like ruin your career. Like, like, like it's not, he doesn't say it like in a, in a, it's, it's stupid as it sounds, in a fun way. Like, I feel like <laughs> that's kind of dumb, but like, it's yeah. fun. Like, I'm going to yell at you the heel wrestling way. It's just like, you fucking whore. It's like, ooh. Like, I yeah. feel like I'm in a, I'm watching an argument I shouldn't be seeing. Yeah, I I, I mean, I know it's, it's that's kind of hard to put into words. But, like, yes, I think I know exactly what you mean, and I agree. 
Yeah. So, um, other things to mention quick before I ask for your opinions is, uh, I thought other than that, as weird as it is, I thought this was a pretty good promo. I thought Matt Hardy had a hard job to walk the line between talking about the WWE stuff, but not making it all about WWE when you're working for Ring of Honor and also about like, like, um, you know, paying tribute to Ring of Honor fans, but not being so much that it sounds like you're just sucking up for them for hours on end. And I thought he didn't overstay his welcome on the promo. And I guess the last thing I will say just about this is that point he mentions about uh, about this being his first real match in almost a year. That's true. Apparently, when I look at Cage Match, he had wrestled someone in some little indie the night before named Dr. Feelgood. I can't imagine that was probably a serious competitive match. For a second, I thought you for a second I thought you were going to just say Doctor Phil. You know, was, <laughs> yeah. Now I would have paid to see that because you know Doctor Phil probably had a lot to talk to Matt Hardy about at this point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know what? He at first was just coming for advice, and then a fight broke out. Yeah. But um, cameras. It was like that would have fight. been like a good in ring angle actually for WWE to do. Like Doctor Phil <laughs> meets with Matt Hardy, Edge, and Lita. <laughs> but that will be something to keep in mind for when we for talking about the match is this was basically when Matt says that he's not lying. I mean, this really was basically his first match in almost a year after he was recovering from serious knee surgery. So that, you know, this was even apart from all the, the storyline intrigue and things circling around him in his world. It was interesting just finding the fact that, oh, Matt Hardy hasn't wrestled in almost a year. But, uh, Joe, uh, we've been gathering for a while. What do you what did you have any thoughts about like? Like how much of Matt? How excited for, were you for to see Matt Hardy at this point? Like, did, I guess so much of the talk about the show was basically, did the fans ever turn on him during the show? What did they feel like? Like, how much of that kind of stuff do you even remember from the show sixteen years ago? I remember that I was super curious about how people would react, given how people reacted to Jeff Hardy, how infamous that was. But I think people had a lot more sympathy for Matt, given you know, how he ended up in Ring of Honor as opposed to to Jeff. So, yeah, I remember it kind of being one of the big selling points. Like, what's going to happen? Like, because, you know, good would people, I think, you know, people would feel sympathetic for Matt Hardy. He's someone who yeah, kind of was kind of almost a trailblazing independent wrestler of his own back in the, you know, he and his brother starting Omega back in the day. So he, you know, he, he wasn't like a WWE product at the time who would have left and tried to come to Ring of Honor. He was someone who really earned his stripes, so to speak. So, yeah, I remember being, yeah, I, I kind of felt people would, you know, as long as he worked hard, people would be okay with him, which turned out to be the case. Matt, do you have any more thoughts before I throw it to you just for your thoughts on the match? Do you have any more thoughts about just this angle or anything else you want to say about Matt? No, just, I mean, the pop that he got was was really, really huge. Like, people were clearly super, super excited to have him there. And like I think a lot of people mentioned, the crowd was a lot of the people in the crowd were there pretty much primarily to see him. I mean, Joe, do you remember getting that sense when you were there? I think the crowd was pretty good all night. It's not like they were silent for everything but Matt Hardy. So I can't say for sure, but I can say it was certainly a much bigger crowd than had been in the area in the past. Mm-hmm. I know Gabe was telling people that there was a big walker from the show. And like, as that note I wrote read at the start, like he certainly was attributing, like saying how old Matt Hardy paid for himself on the show. Like, and knowing from that observer quote that he was, you know, 1500 to 3000 bucks a shot. Like he was certainly attributing a lot of ticket sales to Matt Hardy, I would say, and probably future DVD sales. I have no idea how this sold, but, um, 
And that brings us finally to the match itself. Matt Hardy defeated Christopher Daniels in 20 minutes, 11 seconds, when he made Daniels to hit submit to some kind of submission like a butterfly guillotine lock or something, I believe. He was trying to get this over at the time, calling it the scar or something like that. I don't think it really stuck. But um, Matt, uh, a lot of sub to this match. But how did it actually deliver when he finally wrestled for his first real match in almost a year after all this? You know, big expectations from what do you think it it turned out to be. Well, okay, so first of all, they definitely present this match as a big deal. Like, they have the full-on in-ring main event-style introductions, you know, like they usually save for the main events and the title matches, and they do it here, and the crowd is reacting big to it. The crowd's, you know, doing huge chants at the beginning, you know, dueling chants, chanting for Hardy. Um, at one point, early Prezak mentions that Hardy is proud to be an ROH, but he has to, and he has to work his way up the ladder just like everyone else, except his first match is the semi-main event with like one of their <laughs> biggest stars. Like, so it doesn't seem like this yeah. is, uh, uh, th- this suggests that that's the case, but I guess, uh, Prezak knows better Matt, than me. Matt, don't you ever, don't you climb ladders like the rest of us where you get airdropped onto the second rung from the top <laughs> oh, and yeah. then just finish that way? That's yeah. how I climb. Yeah, I mean, I love getting airdropped onto ladders. Um, but um, it was also kind of surprising to me, even though, you know, you know, like with WWE, their roster is taller than, you know, than you think. Like, it was surprising to me how much, even now, how much taller Hardy was than Daniels. Um, you know, not like he was like towering over him, but like very solidly taller than him. You know, not even not even just slightly. And, you know, I don't you don't think of Daniels as you know, Daniels is a small guy, but you don't think of him as one of like the shortest indie stars, you know? Um, but he was pretty significantly shorter than Hardy, I thought. Um, but as far as the match, I, um, I think I'm probably going to be the high point, uh, the high person on this match in the sense of like, I know a lot of people found this match pretty disappointing at the time, um, and over the years, uh, through the years. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's, I thought it was pretty good. Like, I, you know, it wasn't great. But they worked hard, you know. It was pretty long, and I thought it stayed entertaining. It kept the crowd. Um, I would, I would say, it didn't really have like a story to really carry it into like a really high level. But you know, they did good stuff. You know, I think, I think Hardy looked better in ROH than I remembered him looking. It wasn't like a pure ROH style match. Like it was a sort of like a good match that you might see in WWE. Um, you know, as they they go very very slowly and they. You know, but Hardy does do some stuff that he doesn't usually do. For instance, like a big palm strike uh, to the side of Daniel's head. Like, uh, do you remember him seeing seeing no. Matt Hardy do palm strikes? Um, and it was pretty stiff. Like sweat yeah. flew off Daniel's head. I mean, yeah. He also does a cravat, which again is another thing I'm not used to seeing Matt Hardy do. Like, but you know, he's working on his neck, setting him up for the twist, twist of fate. He also works on his back at different points. Um, uh, Daniel's back, I should say. Um, uh, uh, but, um, you know, they, they do a lot of their, their signature stuff. And I think one of the, I think probably the most memorable part of the match wrestling wise is Matt Hardy doing these like superplexes. And he, so I watched it. And I was like, oh, he does a superplex. And then it's like, oh, he's doing another superplex. I don't remember ever seeing back to back superplexes. And then he does two more. And like, so he does four back to back to back to back superplexes and both guys are down. And I like, I really thought that was cool. Like, I don't know, maybe like that it's, it seems silly, but I was like, well, you know, that's different and pretty cool. And so that really, I think, added to the match for me. Like it was a significant part of the match and I thought it was good. Um, Hardy also hits like a roaring forearm uh, after they get up and trade shots. 
Um, they, they do some more back and forth stuff and they're both like really holding their back after these back suplexes. And at this point they are selling like, you know, they're pretty beat up, like, which, you know, they should be after, you know, all that stuff and the superplexes. And, um, Daniels hits the, the best moonsault ever for two. Um, uh, Hardy gets his knees up after a cabrada, gets a big lariat for two. And then Daniels hits the Death Valley driver. He can't follow up, and that's when CM Punk appears. And in case this uh, this show didn't already have enough men-on-woman violence, he punches Alice in Danger in the face, which, um, yeah, I mean, what else can you say? He, he does that. And Gabe says, you can't do that to a woman. And I'm glad he finally realized that um, after all this time. Um, but um, so so Hardy goes for the twist of fate. Daniel shoves him off into the ref. So and then the ref is distracted just long enough for Punk to punch Daniels with the chain. And Hardy follows up by hitting the twist of fate. Daniels kicks out, which I was even surprised by. Like I thought that was it. I thought that was the finish. The crowd goes nuts for that kick out. So Hardy hits another twist of fate, gets the butterfly, and like you mentioned, Gabe brings up that that Hardy is trying to get that move over. And Daniels is out. Hardy gets the win. Um, you know, I can definitely see people not liking that finish. Um, but you know, they were in a really tough spot with Hardy now being back in WWE. Daniels being a title holder in TNA, so mm-hmm. they were not going to have anyone job clean. I feel like that was about as close to a clean finish as you're going to get in a match like that. Um, and I guess it is better than like a draw, right? So, yeah. um, so you really can't blame ROH for that. But I, you know, I was not expecting much from this match, and maybe that's why I liked it more. You know, I thought it was going to be kind of slow and plotting and just like kind of like not up to ROH standards. And it, it was definitely not a classic. But I thought the crowd real, really helped push it through, and they worked really hard, and the superplex medley was good and different, and I enjoyed it. Like I thought, it, it, like I said, you know, I'm not trying to say this match was spectacular or anything like that, but I thought it was good, and good is pretty good. <laughs> so, Joe, I'm interested in your thoughts because obviously, I feel like Matt, like Matt was saying, a lot of people were disappointed in the match at the time, but I also think people were just so revved up for Matt Hardy and all things Matt Hardy, like. What do you feel about the match now? And do you remember, like, are your thoughts any different now than they were probably, like, watching it live? No, I think it's about the same. I thought at the time this was a a professional wrestling match, meaning it was all clean and completely well-worked by two, you know, pros. And that's how I feel now. And like Matt said, it wasn't all that different from what you could see in WWE until they got to the four superplex spot, which I don't think I'd ever seen before or since. And it's funny on Jimmy Bauer laid it on a bit too thick, like Matt Hardy's not used to working this hard. And he <laughs> talked about how he didn't have to deal with agents and writers anymore, which I don't know what that's supposed to mean in a kayfabe context. But, you know, that's just kind of kind of par for the course. I thought this was a good, a good match. Some, I think someone on Twitter said this was the most disappointing match in ROH history. But, I mean, you know, it was about what I expected and it was good and, you know, a worthy semi-main for the show. Yeah, I am. I would say, like good three and a quarter to three and a half stars if i'm being generous like which again so i guess there's two ways to look at this match i mean by to me if you look at the standards of matt hardy hasn't wrestled in almost a year and he's working in one of the most demanding companies of its era i think this match is very good like he did and i would the way i would put it is he did enough he was good enough here this match is good enough to not be like have something that the crowd hates. If you look at it just by the standards of like a big semi main event for a Ring of Honor show, 
yeah, you would probably want a match bigger than that. But I guess the argument would be Matt Hardy was bringing something to the show that people, the average guy wouldn't. So again, he didn't necessarily need to have a four star. Oh my God, this is great. I've got to buy the DVD just for the match quality match. And can I add it something would, else to the point that you're oh, making, which is, yeah, go on 2005 ROH, like the shows that we've watched, have they really had that many like four star semi main events? Yeah. Yeah. Not really. Right. Maybe, yeah. Exactly. I, I And I also feel like people were going to judge Matt Hardy in a harsher light probably, do you think, just because it would be like, well, he works WWE style. You know, he's yeah, not going to yeah. – even though like Joe said, you know, his roots was – he has real indie roots with Forming Omega, which was a big – one of the more notable indies of the 90s pre like Ring of Honor super indie boom of the early 2000s. Like he has his roots in indie wrestling. But, yeah, Totally. Um, but like, but my, my point is just like I don't think this was so much worse than like your usual ROH second from the top match at this at this point in time. Like based on what we've watched recently. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think the problems with this match would be a little bit like the AJ Strong match, although that match was just more exciting and, and entertaining. But I do feel like and also sometimes Daniel's matches have this problem. Like Joe said, very professional match, very technici- technically proficient, but maybe just like a little cold in terms of emotions sometimes you just feel like oh these guys are just i don't want to say robotic but something halfway to that but that's kind of offset by the fact that the crowd you know is so is very loud for this match they're very excited to see matt hardy wrestle and it's funny matt when you mentioned the four super superplexes because you said you didn't remember it to me that's like the only thing i remember from this match going in other than matt hardy wrestled christopher daniels was oh that's the match with four straight superplexes one from each corner and i don't know if you agree but I thought the fascinating thing about that was right from the start when Matt Hardy came out, it felt like almost everyone was on his side and maybe one or two people were booing him. And the one point where I started to know a few more people were booing him was during the four superplexes. Like it got a reaction, but it did not get as crazy a reaction as I remembered. And I did feel like for some reason, some maybe because some fans felt like maybe, oh shit, Matt Hardy's going to win, isn't he? Like, it felt like the more people realized that Matt Hardy might win this thing, the more people started to change. Like, this was a crowd that maybe a lot of the people came for Matt Hardy, but when you hear that pop that you mentioned, when Christopher Daniels kicks out of the first twist of fate, I think it's pretty clear that was a crowd that wanted to see Christopher Daniels win. They might have been happy to see Matt Hardy there, but I think they wanted their guy to win. Like, do you think I'm being crazy there? Or I, I didn't pick up on the fact that they really wanted Daniels to win. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I, I think I'd, I would. I want to go back and rewatch that because it definitely seems plausible for sure. I um, they, but like you, like I did definitely notice. Like I said, the the huge pop when he kicked out. So I, um, so I don't know. I'm curious to go back and take a look at that now and, and see what if the if the crowd really was switching allegiances there toward the end. But yeah, this is a very just competent, solid, straight ahead semi main event professional wrestling match you know like they start off slow like you said thing you know uh, the one thing i know you you matt you said you noticed um hardy's height i i noticed a little bit the height but i noticed far more like just how thick like matt hardy in 2000 ring of five ring of honor was like one of the beefiest most muscular people on the roster and i realized he was probably doing what he had to do in anticipation of his return to wwe maybe or anywhere he was going so probably had some help and was you know focusing on his body but like i was surprised how just 
muscular and beefy a guy in WWE would look like. Oh, that's one of the smaller guys. You see him against Christopher Daniels, and you go, Jesus, he looks like a fucking brick shithouse, you know, as my dad would have said, compared to a Christopher Daniels. And that, that's true. Daniels was always a kind of a lean type of body also. Like, he was kind of, like, muscular, but, you know, not super bulky compared to some of the other wrestlers also, like, which I think made the contrast even more stark. And I do believe some fan of one of the live reports I was looking at did say something like, oh, Matt Hardy looks like he's put on some muscle. Like, he probably yeah. was at a high point for him in terms of mass at this point. But um, Mass Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, th- there was a point, Matt, where um, – oh, no, you mentioned first – I was – you mentioned uh, – when Gay, when when Punk comes to the ring and punches Alice in danger, and Gay says he just punched her in the face, you can't do that to a woman, Matt. This show has ruined me because I blurted out laughing when I said that, and that is a phrase <laughs> no one should be laughing at. No, but because of the history we have with Gabe, it was so ridiculous for him to say that. Yeah, but like, at, the, at the same time, like it is, it's funny, and like I want to make fun of it, but also like better late than never, right? Like I guess progress. there's also that too. Like we'd rather him. Ha- uh, yes. progress to that stance than just stay at the same stance forever I, no, but, also, I but also he booked that spot so you know <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it was a lot there's a lot of interesting little commentary notes um there was like what Gabe was calling out was interesting like at one point he even noted like the cheers for Daniels are louder than the ones for Hardy which I have to think he's doing the commentary at this point he knows Hardy's only doing three shows so why not really strep put over your guy over the other guy. I I would imagine if Hardy was going to be there because the cheers weren't that much bigger. Maybe they were a little bit bigger at some points for Daniels, but like, I feel like if Hardy was there long-term and Gabe knew that that's probably not something he really points out. Um, yeah. By the way, remind me when, when you're talking about the Daniels promo later, I have something to say about Alice in danger, um, that I don't want to forget. Okay. I will. Um, I also Gabe also points out that like when Jeff Hardy came to Ring of Honor, he was booed out of the building. So I like that he's now kind of using that to try and boost Matt Hardy. Like, look, this Hardy brother doesn't get completely shit on by our fans. So, and um, it also was interesting that one point, um, at one point, Gabe just says something like, "Oh, this is just forty minutes from Stanford." And I thought that was interesting. With you know, you had the two. You could argue the two major angles on the show: the Matt Hardy thing and CM Punk are both so related to WWE. And I think that's like the only reference on the show of the fact that they're basically running like a drive away from Stanford, Connecticut. You know, the home base of WWE. And then my last note: I don't know if either of you guys noticed this, but at one point in the match. Matt Hardy gets thrown out of the ring, and one fan just screams at him from ringside, overrated. And Matt Hardy, under his breath, you can just hear him. I rewound just to make sure he just says to him, thank you. <laughs> and some people start laughing. <laughs> like, rather than do the – see, that, Matt, that's how he should, he should have treated the whole Lita thing. Just yeah. kind of like – more funny and I mean not turning into a joke, but there's an example where he could have been fuck you, man. But so he's just like thank you, and just yeah, takes it yeah. and And I get what you mean, like not necessarily quite that, but like trying to act like he's like you're not like I'm like you wronged me, but I'm above it versus yeah. like I'm cutting myself now, you know, like yeah. like like yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. So that's the match. So there's a bunch of notes um, of what happened after the match. Uh, Wade Keller, he was huge into the Matt Hardy business during this brief spell he had between WWE runs. He did like a whole shoot interview series with him. Um, hey, not, not probably good for business. 
Yeah, and uh, Wade Wade wrote before the, mat, the this show. He wrote, "It will be interesting how Ring of Honor fans react to Hardy. I'm on record predicting they're going to turn on him. Ring of Honor fans are sophisticated, and they're going to resist playing into a WWE storyline at their event. Hardy will be playing an anti WWE pro renegade character. That would have worked if it were true, but Ring of Honor fans know he isn't quote one of us unquote. They know he's under WWE contract. And it's not the same as when WWE's Jerry Lawler invaded ECW." Lawler's gimmick was that of being anti-ECW, so ECW fans relished booing him. Hardy, though, is asking Ring of Honor fans to cheer his character that has been devised to sell tickets to WWE events later this year. I don't think Ring of Honor fans want to be played like that. They can't be bought off just because Hardy mentioned them on TV. While I think WWE fans won't praise his character, Ring of Honor fans will switch from thinking he's got a chance to be in Ring of Honor regular to reacting to him as if he's just stopping by for a cup of coffee and, quote-unquote, using him to sell a, quote, phony renegade image. Although Gabe Sapolsky can't say it publicly, I'm sure he knows. I'm sure he knows that could have what could happen. Hardy, though, is said to be supremely confident he'll have the fans cheering him by the end of the night. We'll see. So I thought it was funny. Like I think <laughs> I love, I love Wade, your I love your tone reading that. Well, Wade, I think sometimes had like a little bit more ownership of what he felt like the tone of Ring of Honor fans was that I think he'd earned. Like, like just the idea, like Ring of Honor fans will think he's fa- like, look, they, the fans, spoiler for the next few shows, they will turn on Matt Hardy. But this idea that like Ring of Honor fans will sniff him out quickly. He's like Wade multiple times in this little article, like puts phony renegade or something to that effect in quotes. Like, like I thought like for a guy that he was doing a shooter with shoot interview with, I thought he was being a little harsh here on basically all sides. Also, they turn on Matt Hardy on shows that aired or that were held after his comeback promo was a huge dud, right? Yeah. That makes a big difference also. So Wade, to see how quickly kind of Wade changed gears, this is what he wrote after the show. Matt Hardy said all of the right things to win over the win over the Ring of Honor fans. I do genuinely wonder how many Ring of Honor fans, as savvy as they are compared to most other wrestling crowds, think Hardy was saying those words without WWE's approval. WWE is that hard. The word is that Hardy's gotten a big kick out of all the speculation about when his situation with Lita and Edge became a work, and those who theorize it was a work from the beginning. The, the way Ring of Honor is booking things, I wouldn't even be shocked to see Matt Hardy win the Ring of Honor title from CM Punk in the Dayton Chicago weekend next month. The problem is Hardy would have to drop it before returning to WWE, and that begs the question of whether WWE would let Hardy lose to a Ring of Honor wrestler, as if it'd make a lick of difference to his success in WWE. So I love that in the span of like one week, Wade goes from like, these fans are too smart. They're going to turn on Matt Hardy too. I wonder if Ring of Honor is going to put the title. If they're going to have Punk drop it to Matt Hardy, which the funny like, part is, the funny part is Punk does drop the title to another guy under WWE contract. <laughs> yeah, but just the swing. Like sometimes Wade could go on real swings where his enthusiasm took him. But um, next we'll go to the Observer. They had some notes. Dave wrote, Matt Hardy debuted and beat Daniels. Crowd was split as people were very happy to see Daniels. Probably 60% pro Daniels, which just no, a note. No, no what, way. What did you say? I was saying no way. Is that true? I would say. 60, would say no, 60% pro Daniels? Well, well, what I would say is uh, my opinion was almost no one was against Matt, but I would say. If you had my impression of who wanted to see Daniels win and who wanted to – or just like who who, – I would say 60% of the crowd was probably more pro-Daniels than pro-Matt. Joe, like, you got to be the tiebreaker here. 
I think people were more pro Matt, but they were very happy to see Daniels. It's not like they were anti Daniels. That's how I felt also. Matt, you said that was a tiebreaker, but technically, isn't that now Joe and you versus me and whoever sent this report and these notes to Dave? It's now the ultimate tag match, Matt. Okay. Anyway. Uh, Ultimate endurance? So anyway, these report notes do kind of deviate from in some other ways, as you'll see from this next sentence. Excellent match. And there was concern considering Hardy's layoff and how long it has been since he's been in a position to work this style. Punk hit Daniels with a chain, which Hardy never saw. Hardy needed two twists of fate and a guillotine submission. Daniels never tapped, and they did a referee stoppage. Because it was a WWE versus TNA guy on a Ring of Honor show, there were a lot of political implications, worse because it was a TNA champion. The TNA office did approve of Daniels losing because of the outside interference and his not tapping. There were fans mad that Daniels lost, with the idea that since Hardy is going to WWE and Daniels is staying with the promotion and challenging for the title, he should have been the one to lose. But Hardy still got a great ovation when it was over. So, yeah, that's I guess that's the one thing we didn't mention is it is one of those crazy moments where, yeah, technically this was a TNA versus a WWE wrestler in a Ring of Honor ring. And, yeah, I, I believe Daniels was X-Division champion at this point, And he was losing clean to Matt. Well, not clean, but so, Matt, you were saying earlier about, like, the finish was probably what it had to be, even though in a way – you know, it, it's Daniels is losing right before he gets a world title match, and it probably makes the position where Matt Hardy, who's also supposed to be a face, gets the benefit of a heel. But like Dave spells out here, it's probably like the only way they could have done this. I would imagine. Yeah, and like they they at least put a, put heat on the Daniels title match, you know, in another way, even though he didn't get to win. Yeah, and um, then we'll go to the torch where they wrote, many fans also chanted for Hardy at first. Along the way, Hardy lost some of the fans, although reports say he looked good for someone who hadn't wrestled this year. Late in the match, the crowd chanted for the best moonsault ever, and Daniels hit it, but Hardy kicked out, which caused several fans to get upset. A lot of the crowd booed and didn't seem happy with Hardy beating one of the cornerstones of Ring of Honor on his first night. The crowd appeared to be split in their support of Hardy after the match. Ring of Honor Booker gave Sapolsky did a good job of not giving the fans too much time to react to the match as they went right into the Punk versus James Gibson as the main event for the Ring of Honor title. Sapolsky tells the torch that Matt Hardy had free reign to say whatever he wanted. Quote, Hardy is a true professional and knows exactly what he is doing, Sapolsky says. There was no way our fans, except for a very small minority who have to go against the grain, were going to boo him. He put us over on Raw, and that is a huge deal for Ring of Honor, and our fans recognize that. Anyone who thought he was going to get booed by the Ring of Honor crowd is an idiot and doesn't know <laughs> as much as they think they do. Oh, man. That, the, folks, if you listen to the next two through the years, remember that quote. Write it down. Stare at it while you listen to our next two shows. Because that is amazing. Yes, well, but but also he's calling out Wade Keller. Yeah, exactly in the torch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know if you. I don't even know if you realized that he was doing that, but maybe. I mean, I know Gabe probably talked to people that weren't just Wade when it comes to the torch, like Sean Radican and guys like that. So for all I know, maybe that quote was not even delivered to Wade because, yeah, that would be very weird if he said that right to Wade. Like anyone who thought yeah. – like again, let me just say again that quote. Any, this is Gabe Sapolsky's words. Anyone who thought that he was going to get booed by the Ring of Honor crowd is an idiot and doesn't know as much as they think they do. That's like pretty harsh by Gabe standards in, in yeah, like public maybe, quotes. Maybe it was time. intentionally directed at Wade. I know, I know you're right. It probably wasn't Wade that he was talking to, but maybe he was thinking of Wade when he when he said that. Because Wade was pretty um, was pretty fervent in his belief that um, <laughs> that Hardy was going to get booed, right? 
<laughs> that's some passive aggressive stuff. If that, yeah, if yeah. that is a like. yeah, yeah. So one other note: this is something I completely forgot at the time. This is from the TNA section of the Torch. Um, Matt Hardy was rumored to appear at the No Surrender pay per view, which was actually the pay per view that was running the day after the show. Um, but TNA did not want a WWE contracted wrestler on their show. Mere hours before the pay per view was set to begin, TNA Wrestling.com posted a statement regarding Matt, Harmer, Matt Hardy's rumored appearance in an effort to silence rumors. TNA indicated Matt would not appear at the pay per view despite telling people at the previous night's Ring of Honor show that he was headed to Orlando for the pay per view. The statement for TNA read, quote, TNA Wrestling would like to officially address this rumor as totally false. In an effort to further his own agenda, Hardy told several people last night he would be traveling to Orlando for the No Surrender pay-per-view. TNA Wrestling would like to let our fans know this is not the case and he will not be appearing. Matt's name was mentioned during the pre-show leading to the pay-per-view when Jeff Jarrett ripped for, on the fans for buying into, quote, that Matt Hardy BS, unquote. Jarrett translated the excitement about Matt possibly appearing on the show into anticipation for Rhino debuting with TNA. It's not clear how realistic it was that Hardy might appear on the pay-per-view, but even if it were an option, TNA management might have been reluctant to promote a WWE-contracted wrestler in the midst of a WWE book storyline on their pay-per-view with no future access to Hardy beyond that one appearance. So, yeah, I forgot about this too, but apparently Matt Hardy was telling people at the Ring of Honor show he was going to work the TNA pay-per-view the next night, and it got held enough to the point where TNA actually had to, like, issue a statement and be like, no, don't – and. and I mean, kudos to TNA for once. I mean, I feel like a lot of wrestling companies in history would have been scummy enough to be like, let them just assume that Matt Hardy's coming here and we'll sell some more pay-per-views. But kudos for them for at least telling people like, no, this he's not doing this. It's amazing how much Matt Hardy was like in the news at this time. Like he was just such a big deal and how much we've had to talk about Matt Hardy for the last like hour. It's yeah. like – there are very few wrestlers that we've spent so much time on on one single episode. So that just tells you what a big deal Matt Hardy was at this point. Yeah, again, it's it's a lot for us, but it's, it's it does kind of show like how much he kind of captured everyone's attention for a very brief window. But um, finally, quickly, the torch wrote. Matt Hardy hung out backstage with all the Ring of Honor wrestlers before and during the show and then stayed late and signed autographs for fans. So always a, a rare treat when they give that little extra thing in the newsletters off basically saying this guy was nice. But that's basically yes. what that was. Um, after the match, refs run to check on Alice in Danger. Uh, Punk gets on the mic as Matt Hardy leaves and says Hardy beating Daniels knocks him out of title contention. Punk says the show is over. He's leaving with the belt now. And at that point, the lights go out and James Gibson's music starts. Prezak again says on commentary, as they've been saying on all these shows lately, that this is Punk's final night in Ring of Honor. James Gibson then does, in fact, come out, make his way to the ring with a huge bandage wrapped around his bloody head. Uh, Punk meets him in the aisle. They brawl, but they quickly get in the ring. The bell rings. The match is on. And that brings us to our main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Match. CM Punk defeated James Gibson via pinfall in 27 minutes, 44 seconds, when he did a roll-up while putting while holding onto the ropes. Uh, Joe, you're the guest. It's your time to cover the main event. This was a long match, and I believe, I forget from your live report, maybe other people's live reports, wasn't also getting fairly late, and you're the one that also mentioned this was a hot building. So how the heck were you holding up at this point? Yeah, we were about three and a half hours into the show when the bell rang in a very hot building, so I don't know if there was a ton of heat, at least not the the wrestling kind anyway. Yeah, there was a ton of heat, but not a ton of heat. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought the match was good. It was, was, watching it, I was just kind of surprised how 
really basic it was. They didn't really do anything crazy. Gibson hit a big dive at one point. I know he kind of hit an apron DDT, but there was nothing else really, you know, they didn't do anything too crazy. It was a very kind of traditional match and kind of that NWA champion style of match where, you know, Punk pulls it out at the end. You know, he has to grab the ropes to win and really holds off the challenger. And, and you know, Punk uses a bear hug at one point, <laughs> as a, uh, which I thought was so uh, an interesting move in his repertoire. So, yeah, I, I thought it was good. Like, you know, at the time, watching the show back, I had to take a break because we'd seen so much and kind of go back to revisit the main event. And, yeah, it's kind of how I felt live. It was like, you know, I don't know if we really need a 27-minute match at this point. And also, I think people knew – I don't think people – really felt the belt was going to change hands to Gibson this night. But especially when Punk just came off a, a thing with Daniels, you're like, well, he has to do something with Daniels yeah. with the belt. So I think that kind of like, well, we know he's going to win. So I don't know if they really need to go 27 minutes, especially this late in the show. Um, I have a feeling I'm, well, this will be a position where Matt will be the tiebreaker. Cause I have a feeling I'm going to be the high vote on this match, even though I'll say this. I have a bunch of problems with this match. I do not think it's a great match. It was barely my favorite match on the show. I would give this three and three quarter stars. I feel like this was a match on its way to being great and kind of lost its way. I'll start with the good stuff. I think the best thing about this match is it's different from Punk's previous world title matches. Like his last two title defenses or his first two, they were, they were also, were him kind of working these rookie, these up-and-comers, you know, Jay Lethal and Roderick Strong, and he was kind of controlling a bit more of the matches, and he was having a lot more time to kind of be cocky and just kind of grin to the crowd and really be that shit-eating heel and enjoy everything. This match, you know, it opens with an intense brawl, and they work much more 50-50, and Punk has much less time to kind of play with the crowd, which is the way it should be, because in storyline, in booking, Gibson is a much more much bigger, more established threat and a bigger name and more experienced. And they wrestle it that way. And I also like this match. This match did go back and forth, but it was not your move, my move. It was like my moves, your moves until the end, until probably the end stretch where, you know, a guy would get on a run for a little while. Another guy would get on a run for a little while. And I did like, you know, I liked even just little things like punk. It seemed like almost mo- a lot of times when punk got the advantage, he would just kind of stomp, on um, Gibson's forehead cut uh, whenever he could, although that does lead to one of the flaws in the match, which was well, obviously one of the stories of this match is they had this Gibson out of this cut on his head. They tried to sell that was so huge, you know, that, you know, it was threatening to make the match not even possible. And then Gibson comes out, his bandage comes off fairly early and he doesn't bleed that much, but you know, we've seen some real horrible blood, bloody faces in 2005 ring of honor. He doesn't bleed that much. And then, Matt, I mean, CM Punk, you know, get, is another victim of the notoriously sharp edges of the Ring of Honor, like sheet metal or whatever they are, um, sign put, barricade things. And he gets a pretty nasty con on his back. And honestly, I felt bad because it almost, I felt like, like it made Gibson's cut look even less impressive and kind of took away from what was supposed to be the focus in some ways because, like, Punk's cut in some ways was more gnarly, just like, ow, that's really got to hurt. It's really bleeding, a long trail of blood right on your back. Um, but then to my biggest flaw. So my biggest flaw in the match was basically, oh, I also liked, like like Joe was saying, some of the old school touches, like the bear hug. Or even he took off his, Punk took off his ring tape at one point and choked um, Gibson with it, which I thought was kind of neat because, like, we had just seen Rave basically do the same thing with a shoelace to Punk a few shows ago when Punk was the babyface. So I like kind of that role reversal where now he's doing that kind of thing. 
But anyway, my big flaw with the match was I felt like this match was on a way to a four-star match. But go, but I agree with you, Joe. It just went too long. And comparing it again to the uh, the Gibbs, uh, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the last two title defenses from Punk, the strong one and the lethal one, I felt like those matches were both well over were over 20 minutes, but neither of them felt like they overstayed their welcome. I felt this was a match where if you took five minutes out of it, it would have been better. And usually with Ring of Honor matches of this era, what that means is they did like five minutes more of too many of near falls and went overkill. But in this match, I felt like they did like the right amount of stuff at the end. You know, they had a Gibson hit the tiger driver for a near fall, which plays off that he hit it for in a non-match thing on the last show and fully counted three. They had him tease the, uh, the tiger driver off the, off the, the top for the second turnbuckle, which is going to set up a, something for a future show. But I felt like it was five minutes too long in the middle. Like, like Joe said, there was a lot of basic wrestling in this that kind of didn't go anywhere. And there was just probably five minutes too much of this where it was just like at the end of the match, I was kind of saying you're going too much stuff. Like it, it was not worth the end. Like they, they, you could have cut, there was fat to be trimmed in the middle of this, but I still think these were two really talented professional wrestlers. Now, I think I almost feel it the way you felt about the Matt Hardy, um, match Matt, where it's two very professional wrestlers having a good professional wrestling match and i enjoyed it but it was yeah it's not as what you think it could have been maybe and i don't think in some ways it's as exciting as punk's last two title matches which is disappointing because gibson is fucking great but uh matt what did you think yeah i don't know that i'm actually lower on this match than you i um i think we like different things and dislike different things about it but i think we might have liked it about the same amount um in terms of like star rating and stuff like that um i think what joe mentioned is important to why this match played worse than the previous two punk title defenses which is and i mentioned this on the last couple shows that first double shot weekend with punk as champion most people believed that that was it for him. And he was going to do these two extra shows and lose the title in a big way. So people thought that Roderick Strong or Jay Lethal could win the title. And mm-hmm. by this point, I, for me, I know for myself as a fan, I was like, all right, he's staying until the Midwest, right? He's, he's, his final yeah. show is going to be Chicago. He'll lose the title either then or the night before. I was pretty convinced of that. And I think probably a lot of fans were too. So no longer did they feel like the title was in jeopardy. And that obviously changes the level intensity, a level of intensity they have toward a title match. Um, I think that is one of the biggest things this match had going against it. Um, the other thing was like you mentioned like this, that the match could have had some things cut in the middle. For me, the worst part of the match was the beginning. So like I just thought it was so slow. Like it, it, and it ended up building in you know in intensity and stuff. But I don't know. I feel like there was some counterintuitive stuff. Like Punk did the angle at the be- earlier on where he bloodied Gibson, and then Gibson comes up with a comes out with a bandage. And you'd think that the logical thing at that point is Punk has the massive advantage early on and beats the crap out of Gibson because he's coming out already wounded. But they don't really do that. Gibson actually gets most of the offense for the first few minutes of the match. He does the tope, you know, he beats Punk all around ringside. Like, it could have easily been a situation where they booked that exact match without the injury angle earlier on. Um, like, there was, re- like, you know, and obviously Gibson did have the cut and he bladed a few more times throughout the match. But really, he had the advantage early on. 
Um, and then Punk eventually got it, and the crowd was quiet, and the match was still slow. But I feel like if they had just cut to a Punk's um, offensive dominance at the beginning, I feel like the match would have been a little better. Um, and then had Gibson, you know, make his comeback later on. Um, but, you know, Gibson's working over Punk while selling injured was very slow. Um, you're right about that gash in Punk's back. Like, not only did it take away from Gibson's blade job, but it had to really hurt. Like, it, it, it hurt yeah. me just looking at it. Like, jeepers, creepers. Like, it was, it was really, um, really rough. But, um, and yeah, I also really enjoyed the bear hug. I thought that was great, um, just because it's different, you know, and whenever you, you throw something different in there, I think that helps. Um, but I did enjoy the last 10 minutes. I think you're right. They had the right amount of near falls and like, and like, you know, close calls and big spots, and I think they were good. Um, there was also a really cool spot where Punk got to show his power. Like, he was really in good shape at this point. Um, at one point, Gibson got the choke on Punk on the mat, and Punk actually stood up with Gibson on him and turned it into a brain buster. Like, that's not something you expect from Punk. That's more something you expect from, like, Cesaro, right? Like, yeah, he was really in good shape. And then when he locked in the Anaconda device, I thought that the struggle in that hold was one of the best I've seen in a while as Gibson really tries to aggressively fight out and, like, really beckon the crowd to give him his support, give him their support. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I thought that was great. And that was, of course, the finish where, where where Punk just grabs the ropes, grabs the tights and rolls them up and grabs yeah. the ropes and wins the match. And Gabe actually yells, whoa, at that finish and is like, oh, he's going to leave the belt, leave with the belt again. And at that point, when when he says he's going to leave with the belt, I feel like it's almost a little cringe at this point. Um, yeah. But um, that's kind of beside the point. I thought it was a it was it was yeah, it was a quite good match. You know, I think they did eventually get the crowd as awake as they were going to get. Um, at this point in the show, but I think if they had just started with a little bit more, like just like Punk dominating him, and like you know, like say making it shorter, and then Gibson getting that comeback and getting to that final sequence faster, I think they could have done a little bit more. But I will say this: the match definitely had the feeling like both guys were absolutely spent and brutalized, yeah. and like I think that's cool. Like you know, like because they should have been and. I think if they were going to try, if they were trying to sell that aspect of it, they did a really good job. They, they, everyone, it just seemed exhausting and brutal in a good way. So I'll compliment them for that. I, I forgot to mention, but that, that I'm so glad you brought up. That's a great point. That's another thing I liked about this match was it felt like a war, like a world title belt where, you know, there are a lot of great matches in the modern era where guys almost feel like fresh as a daisy. They're running around hitting their big moves at the end where this felt like you felt like the fatigue and the weight of what these guys had, had done. Like, and they were very good at that, which I always love, but yeah, and I'm sure the heat in the building helped them not yeah. have to sell that too much. Yeah, Joe. Joe in the, in the crowd was looking the same way, and he wasn't wrestling. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, a couple of notes from this: uh, PW Insider wrote CM Punk suffered a broken nose and a gash down his back during the main event. So, not just the back thing. Uh, Christopher Daniels suffered a split lip during either his match with Hardy or the show closing bra with Punk. We'll see that in a minute with a promo. Um, the Pro Wrestling Torch would write: Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the Torch regarding Punk versus Gibson. Quote. I believe that James Gibson and CM Punk put on a dramatic match. They are both so good. Gibson is one of the best workers in the world. Punk is going to be a huge hit in WWE. It might not happen overnight for him there, but I predict he'll be a main eventer for them for years. And, of course, he was right. 
After the match, the crowd chants bullshit as commentary yet again says Punk is going to leave Ring of Honor with the title. Uh, Punk grabs the mic and tells Gibson better luck next time, calling him kid and saying he has a lot of heart. If you just keep plugging away, maybe you'll make it someday. <laughs> He's just being such an old curmudgeon asshole here. It's great. Um, Punk says Gibson has the honor of being Punk's last match in ROH. Then he says that no one can beat him and ends up saying say goodbye to the champ. The crowd at this point starts chanting for Samoa Joe, as they have been basically for any moment like this on recent shows. But it's Christopher Daniels who runs in the ring, and he starts exchanging punches with Punk. The crowd chants ring the bell. They want to see like an impromptu title change. Daniels is eventually able to hit Punk with his own title belt. He stands over Punk with the belt and grabs the mic. Daniels says if Punk wants to go to WWE, that's fine with him. Raw, SmackDown, Heat, Velocity, Afterburn. And then he starts at this point screaming some things, and he starts screaming so loud it blows out like the local PA system, and I can't understand what they're saying. But they get a giant round of applause, whatever he's saying. Are the, did the Daniels, WWE have other TV shows at that point? <laughs> I, I think Afterburn. You're scraping the bottom of the <laughs> yeah. barrel at that point. But, yeah, uh, I didn't even remember that he existed until he said it. Daniel says that Punk ever wants to put his hands on this championship belt ever again, though, he's going to have to come fight him to do it. Daniel's music hits as he walks to the back with the title. Uh, now, Matt, this is interesting. I, I want to ask you about this. So I'm glad because you comments on your uh, review of the Punk match were kind of hinting at this. So I want your opinions on this comment. Dave from The Observer, I'm not there, but the angle seems to be losing steam. Like it went from really clever to, okay, you've done your angle, now let's move on. It hurt that the show was three and a half hours, long before they got into the ring for the main event. So the crowd had lost the steam for the match. Now, do you agree with that? I mean, I can kind of see it, and I kind of not I'm kind of on the fence about this one, the idea of, like, you're doing I, – I, I mean, when you look at it, the angle only lasts about – two months and six or seven shows it's not that long of an angle really but it is the sense of like you were saying earlier they are trying to kind of keep this will he or won't he like story going they're trying to hit that same note and maybe to your point you can only hit that note for a couple shows before people figure it out right yeah i mean yeah i'm on your side which is like I see what he's saying and I also disagree with it in the sense of like I disagree that like the angle needed to end at this point. You know what I mean? Like I think it went the right length. I do agree that yeah, they, they should have cooled out on that he's going to leave with the title because like I said, I don't think people bought it at this point. Like I said, in the first two shows they did, I didn't at this point. By the time I went to the show in Philly the next week and I didn't think he was going to lose to Daniels because like there are two shows in Dayton and Chicago and I like – but the thing is, like, that's why I think Dave should have chilled a little bit because it's like it was very clear he's going to stay until Chicago. So, like, let it play out until Chicago. I think that's totally fine. But and maybe that's why Punk even himself, when I when I talked about how he didn't mention that on his promo, maybe that's why he didn't mention it. Maybe he realized, like, all right, like I should probably chill with this because it's going to get kind of stupid at this point when I keep saying I'm going to leave and I don't. And whereas Gabe was hitting that note. Um, pretty hard at this point. Like, whoa, he's going to leave with the title, and then something always happens that makes him not leave with the title. Um, you know, I think they could have played it a little differently. Just like, Punk is still the champion. What are we going to do? Can somebody please come and, and stop him again? Like, you know, so, you yeah. know, like acknowledging that this was probably not going to go that way, um, I guess is what I'm saying. I do think maybe, you know, Foley in the past two shows was there to add a little bit of like logic to some of the situations, and I think Foley not being there, um, you know, maybe made the story a little bit harder to tell here. You know, I think he's such, he's just such a good promo and such a good storyteller. Um, but 
No, I don't. I, I would say overall, I don't agree with Dave. I don't think that like the. I don't think this was like wearing out its welcome. I think they should have just kind of hit different notes, emphasize different things to make it a little bit less cringe as they got to that Midwest um, title match. Joe, do you have any thoughts about this at the time? I mean, this was a hot angle at the time. I mean, did you come away from this saying, uh, they're doing this too much? Or were you just like, I can't wait to see more more of this? No, I, yeah, I want to see. I mean, you kind of knew the end was in sight. This didn't go on for, like, years. I think it was, like, seven shows in total. And it, yeah. it went by quite, pretty quick. So I, I think it, yeah, I didn't I didn't think it was really run that steam too fast. Yeah, in fact, there, I mean, there are three shows left and then Punk's gone. So, uh, like, it, you know, it's very close to the end, actually, in like in terms of number of shows. So um, a couple of notes about where things were at at this point, what like the people via the newsletters knew at this time. Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, CM Punk retained the Ring of Honor title once again this weekend, despite fans expecting him to lose soon since he has already signed a WWE developmental deal. He defeated James Gibson. Uh, Punk signed the WWE developmental deal last month, but isn't going, isn't being called up to Ohio Valley Wrestling yet. Expected he'll be there in about a month. Until then, it's a guessing game regarding when he'll drop the Ring of Honor title. I see. Like, I'm Dream- sorry to interrupt. I don't get that. Like, why did it seem so obvious to like me, for example, that he was going <laughs> to stay until Chicago? Like, didn't isn't that just common sense? Well, also, I mean, you're basically just putting two and two together because it's saying right here in the quote he's expected to be in Ohio Valley in about a month. So, like, you look at the Ring of Honor calendar and go, okay, he had, the last show in that month span is going to be in Chicago. It makes sense. He'll probably leave. In Chicago, you know? Yeah. Like, like I get it that you're probably not told officially that. I mean, I'm sure Gabe was not telling people, yeah, this is Punk's last show. He was trying to keep some mystery. Right. But, yeah, it's a fair assumption to make when you know if someone tells you the WWE side, Punk's going to be going in about a month. Like, you can probably do some math there. But, um so anyway, uh, Wade continues. It's expected he'll be there in about a month. Until then, it's a guessing game whether regarding when he, when he'll drop the Ring of Honor title. Tommy Dreamer is in charge of communications with developmental talent, and he has been very flexible with Punk so far when it comes to him finishing up his indie commitments and playing out this final storyline. That'll in that'll come in. That'll come into play like months later. Actually, the Tommy Dreamer being flexible with Punk thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, then they add, the best guess on Punk's final date in Ring of Honor is that it will be in Chicago, Illinois, on August 3rd. Okay, so there. Makes me kind of look like an idiot. Okay, get, Wade maybe is doing a bit of the math. No title match is announced yet, though, since Ring of Honor's play-up that fu- Punk's final match will be whenever he loses the Ring of Honor title, which actually isn't true, uh, which could, for storyline purposes, be against Daniels this Saturday. Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky is also playing up a storyline with a straight face that Punk is playing politics and refusing to drop the Ring of Honor title. So I don't know, Matt, if guys, if this is something that was on the website and the Wayback Machine does not have good access to like the articles on the Ring of Honor website at this time. And obviously the message board is lost to history. But I can tell uh, we can say that on the DVDs, they weren't playing up that work shoot aspect. I'm wondering if at this time they were trying to do on the message boards because I could see them trying to be like punk's not going to do business like yeah well gabe always did stuff like that where he would like do the work shoot stuff on the message board but like kind of keep that crap out of the actual dvd product um but i don't personally remember that for this but yeah it wouldn't surprise me at all and then finally the last story from this before we wrap up the segments on the show um 
and I will remember the Alice in Danger thing that don't worry. But uh, this is a segment that I think, Joe, you'll be able to hopefully add something to. And if not, I want to point something out that maybe even you've forgotten. I have a I have a heavy accusation to throw your way, Joe. But first, from the Pro Wrestling Torch, a fan threw debris at CM Punk after his match on Saturday night in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Punk actually jumped into the crowd and chased the fan out of the building and down the street before being talked into returning. Punk was either really worked up from his match or trying hard to cement his heel image by overreaction. After Punk left the building, Homicide, DeVito, and Low Key were among a group of wrestlers who chased after Punk, which that can't be real because Low Key wasn't at the show, was he? What I mean, what? Anyway, um... Trying to coax him into letting the fan go or watch his back in case it turned into a legitimate street confrontation. I like the phrase street confrontation. Anyway, eventually Punk did return. He was in good spirits backstage later as a doctor tended to a nasty gash on his back that he suffered during the match. Other fans threw garbage at Punk, but the one fan he chased in particular set him off. There was a message posted at the Ring of Honor website message board asking about it, but the post was deleted. So, Joe... First off, do you remember anything about this? But also, Joe, why did you do this to Punk? <laughs> no, I would not. I, no, I remember it was just some guy on the other side of the uh, of the building, like you know, people throwing paper cups and what. I'm one of them must have greatly upset Punk because I just remember he chased him into the parking lot and I. The show ended. I left. I, I didn't see anything afterwards when I went outside. I didn't see any kind of no street confrontation to uh, Boy, that I could see. Punk would not like being in GC. GCW. Exactly. Like, it, it is funny how things keep coming up. So, Joe, I want to point this out. I don't know if you remember. The last Ring of Honor show I believe you attended live, and the last show you did with us, was Best of the American Super Juniors. Do you remember what happened at the end of that CM Punk match? A, a fan got into it with Punk, and Punk left leapt over the barrier to try it. I believe that he actually did assault the fan a little bit. Joe, why do you keep getting on Punk's case at all these shows? I, I like, do you, why were you being so mean to the man? Like, it's just too much of a coincidence. Like, Punk, Punk can't be a hothead. It has to be something in this area. Um, I must bring bad vibes where, wherever I go. <laughs> well, well, that, Punk too, well I, can, fans. I can say that's definitely not true, Joe. Um, <laughs> but um, maybe that's what got Punk to go to uh, AEW is that he saw the thing where uh, the, the fan tried to attack Jericho and Jericho fought him. And, he, and Punk is like, oh, this is the perfect place for me to get to fight fans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought that's what he was doing in the UFC, but it didn't work out for him. So, <laughs> boom. <laughs> Anyway, we, uh, I will never insult CM Punk on this podcast. I do not want him mad at me. <laughs> we go backstage where uh, – I don't attend wrestling shows. I'm safe. But uh, we go backstage where Sugar Sean Price is joined by Nigel McGuinness, who is wearing a really cool Brian Pillman T-shirt. Um, it's like, got like a cartoon Pillman. It almost looks like a sports jersey with a number on it. Uh, Pillman – I mean Price, Pillman does not – that would be that would be an amazing story. Um, Price tells Nigel that Colt Cabana has gone to Europe to learn from Nigel – to learn from the European style, to learn what Nigel has learned and beat him with it when he comes back. Nigel says Colt's been to the England before and he can go again. He can learn everything Nigel's learned and it's not going to matter. Nigel says he's been on a winning streak for as long as he can remember, which I don't think is true. And pretty soon he's going to have a belt around his waist, which is – going to be true he says if cabana is stupid enough to get in the ring with him again he'll just beat him one more time you know so uh, a nice oh so, go on Matt. no no i so I, I, this is totally uh t- a tangent like beside the point but whenever i see sean price i think about this 
He's been in ROH for like a year and a half. Can you think of uh, like a guy who's like who works for a company that you see as little as him? Like his appearances are very sporadic, and even on the shows he's on, he doesn't appear very much. It's like it's just such like a weird job. Like do they like when they bring him to a show? Do they expect to do more with him and then just leave it on the cutting room floor? Like I mean, Gary Michael Capetta is not too different. Like well, he doesn't appear very often on these shows that they bring him to. But like it's weird that they bring a whole person like. You know whether it's Price or Capetta to these things, and have them do so little. It's and I, I wonder, like, do they do other things like when they're there? Like, it's just I don't know. I, it's a weird thing to say, but just like because I'm not involved in like wrestling production or promotion at all, it's just it's just weird for me to see that. Like the, these 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 like interviewers who just basically they say like they're they're on camera for like a minute total, and they say almost nothing, and that's the case on like many many shows. It's just it's interesting. It's weird that. You, you would think for a company, you know, that it's an indie company and a company that up to this point in its history had lost six figures of money. Like, I don't know how much these guys are getting paid. Probably not that much. But this is a company that barely needs one backstage interviewer. And you look at show. Yeah, on most of these shows that I mean, Price doesn't do every show, but like Capetta does one interview in intermission. Price does one interview at the or, or one interview in intermission as well, I think. And then one at the end of the show or something like that. Like, I mean. One person can easily handle that kind of workload. Like that's also, not enough work for one person. And also, like a lot of the times with the ROH promos, it's just Gabe holding the camera and the guy being like, "Hey, you want to cut a promo now?" Like they could also just do that and not hire any of these guys. Like, yeah, it's, it's just it's in, it's just I'm very curious as like what the mindset is about why these guys are needed. Not that I want anybody to lose their job 16 years ago, but I um. It just it was it's just confusing to me how little they actually do on camera. And that brings us to the final segment of this DVD. Elsewhere backstage, Christopher Daniels with a gash on his lip and the Ring of Honor title over his, shul- over his shoulder is joined with uh, – she's Allison Dangers is at his side. Daniels says he's waited 16 months to get his revenge on CM Punk. He wants to know why Punk targeted him to begin with. He says it was easy to see why Punk hated Raven. Raven was the polar opposite of Punk. Raven was a man whose impulse control was zero. He gave into every vice he had, whether it was the bottle or the pill or the flesh. Dan- and first off, Daniels, I, I would say uh, Punk has given into the flesh, I would say, from rumors I've heard. Um, anyway, Raven was a man whose impulse... Well, I just said that. Daniels says he's not a pill popper. He's not a carouser. He's not an alcoholic. And you could almost call him straight edge. He says he knows, though, that calling himself straight edge just because he doesn't do a little drinking is disrespectful to straight edge. So that's why he doesn't do that. Daniels asks Alice in Danger why Punk targeted him. And she doesn't answer. He just says he realized it was jealousy. Punk wants to be that type of star, wants to be the type of star that Daniels is, the kind of guy that Ring of Honor brought to the building in the first place. Daniels then asks Allison to talk, to tell him about the night he dressed up like CM Punk and walked to the ring. He says he can't tell, can't because it never happened. But Punk dressed like him. He stole his robe, he stole his music, and he walked that aisle. Daniels asks Punk if those weren't the greatest moments of his life. He says when Punk took off that hood, the fans were disappointed, but the voices in Punk's head probably were disappointed too. Daniels says you Punk can do all the steps he did. He can do some of the things he's never done even, but Punk still can't meet the standard of Christopher Daniels. The voices in Punk's head tell him that he's just not good enough. Punk sa- says that he t- – I mean he says that Punk tells everyone that straight edge means I'm better than you, but when he says it to Daniels, no one believes it. Even Punk doesn't believe it. He says he's taking matters into his own hands now, and if Punk wants this world title belt, he's going to have to wrestle him to get it. Daniels is going to give him the farewell he deserves and tells Punk to say his prayers – because the belt is going to be his. 
So, Matt, you wanted to mention and talk about this, and you wanted to bring up Alice in Danger. I'll just say, I think this is probably the best promo we have ever seen Christopher Daniels cut in Ring of Honor, except for one small thing, which is it's referencing something that happened 16 months ago, and anyone who remembers what he's referencing will also know Punk had a pretty good reason to attack Christopher Daniels 16 months ago, where they did a whole angle where basically the prophecy was evil and and in welcome the guy in bj whitmer into their fold that uh, attacked punk's lady friend you know lucy and like drove her out of the company through physical violence and or whatever like 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 the the whole conceit of this daniel's angle is he's like i don't know why punk is so mad at me he must be jealous when if you've been around long enough as a ring of honor fan you know that's not the case but other than that if you could ignore that I think if you, ignore the, if you could ignore the whole premise of the promo. <laughs> yeah, if you could ignore the central premise of the promo, it's the best promo I think he's ever done in Ring of Honor so far. But what's your Alice in Danger thing, and what do you think about this? I mean, I thought it was a good promo. I don't know if it was the best that he's done, but it was very good, like very well delivered and like, you know, had good um, pathos and like um, emotional resonance. But um, I'm very distracted by the danger thing that I have in mind because I know this is something that is going to continue, and it bothers me, which is Allison Danger, in her previous incarnation, was a character. She had a personality. She added to the act. She said things in promos. She, um, you know, she had things to say and feelings, and since Daniels is now a face, in his promos, all Allison Danger does, and you watch, you will see, this is continues, she just stands in the background and makes faces and nods along and stuff. And it's like, why did they completely lobotomize Alice in Danger's character? I don't understand that. Even just recently, she was like a crazy person. And it's like, I get that she's like happy now because Daniels is back, but that doesn't mean she has to become a mute. And it's, and it really bothers me. And in this particular promo, it bothers me even more because just a few minutes earlier, CM Punk punched her in the face. <laughs> And now That's her role in the show, Matt. Very important. But now she's just standing there, and like Daniels doesn't mention it. She doesn't mention it. The old Alice in Danger would have been like, "How dare you, CM Punk?" You know what I mean? Like she's just like she's just like a body now. She's just standing there, like t- taking up space. And I don't mean this like as a knock on her. Like this is how they're presenting her. Like she's great. Like I, I always thought she did a great job yeah. with the prophecy. Like it's. I think they should have done. They should have used her better at this point. And I don't understand why they just all of a sudden were like, "Yeah, now that Daniels is a babyface, Alice in Danger doesn't have to say or think anything anymore." It really bugs me. It bugged me here. It will continue to bug me. And in case I forget, on future shows, uh, I wanted to say it now. That's a good point, and it is another. We talk about like the Matt Hardy thing being like a, a symbol of something that like a larger issue with him, like. This is a symbol, I think, of a larger issue with Ring of Honor, which is women at this point in Ring of Honor are largely there to serve as props or victims of violence or just cheap yeah. heel heat or, but you know, d- like danger was, danger was the one who they gave up character to, though. Like, yeah. And, and, yeah, and like, yes, the stuff where she was crazy and got beat up by Moth and Whitmer was not great. But like before that, like the original prophecy, like she added a lot to that. Right. Wouldn't you agree? She was the closest they had in Ring of Honor to this point of a three-dimensional female character. And yeah. like you're saying, they're now she's becoming 2D as everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, do you have any thoughts about the promo or any of this uh, stuff? Uh, I, <laughs> you know, I thought it was good that he brought back when Punk dressed up as, uh, as him. 
but it was like like 16 months prior it was like i don't know maybe he should have moved on by that point but you know he did have to leave the company and all that so i guess i guess he had to go back to it at some point joe there are things i haven't let go let go of that happened like 30 years ago i i robbed a a a, uh, a whale-shaped soap bead when i was like eight years old and it broke in my pocket as i left the store and made me look like i urinated myself and then i had a panic attack and started crying out of guilt that i stole something and joe i still i think i need more therapy about that so 16 months is nothing joe nothing at all but with that what well, you, well, you deserve is 16 months for robbing that thing Exactly. exactly. I don't even remember what you said you took. But, but. <laughs> the statute of limitations is done. I cannot be arrested for this horrendous crime. But uh, guys, that was Fate of an Angel. Joe as the guest and because we've lathered a lot. What did you think about the show? As always, you have the interesting perspective that we don't for shows like this of you attend it live. You wrote about it at the time. You've rewatched it all these years later. Has your opinion changed at all? What Was it a good time revisiting it? Did you enjoy listening to us talk about Matt Hardy for so long? How How's it, Joe? I think at the time I remember thinking like this is probably the best Ring of Honor show I'd attended up to that point. I think it's still true. There's nothing blow away great on this show, but everything's pretty much good to very, very good. You know, you have the hot angle with Punk. You have the significance of Matt Hardy coming in. You have a bunch of new faces, some of which won't be along much longer. But still, everything kind of worked to a degree. So, yeah, I think this was the best Ring of Honor show I had attended, at least up to that point. I have to consider further, but it's certainly a strong contender going forward. But up to this point, yeah, best Ring of Honor, best New England Ring of Honor event. To me, this was a solid, good show, but... No blow-away matches, although, again, a lot of good matches to pretty good. I would say, as as people that have been watching every show re- or re-watching every show for the podcast, I think it's a step down from the last double shot me and Matt just watched. I, I feel like, you know, the angle isn't quite as hot with Punk. I felt like those main events with him were a little bit better. Um, I just thought those shows were a little bit better. Taught the bottom had a bit better of an energy. Again, uh, you informed us that the crowd, not only did this show go late, but it was blistering hot with no AC. So I'm sure that, although this crowd was pretty good for most of the night until that last late main event that went long. And, but overall, good show. I do think it is a, a step down from the last few shows, but still, still a good show. Matt, what did you think? I thought it was not too much lower uh, of you know more too much of a step down from the previous show i you know it didn't have like the real important feeling of that long island show where punk signed his contract and stuff but or the great promos but i thought you know it was just super solid from top to bottom the only match i didn't like was the uh, tag team match and you all like that so probably even more solid for you than it was for me and um you know it felt like there were important things happening with matt hardy and just good wrestling and yeah no blow away matches but you know, neither did some of the other recent shows. So, uh, and the crowd was, I thought, good. You know, for the most part, until they got real tired at the end. So, I thought that this was a quite good show, and I think continues a pretty solid streak for ROH. Um, you know, I th- I still think that the shows that they had in May um, were probably their best shows of the year so far. But um, you know, they're they're still keeping uh, their shows at a pretty high level at this point, and uh, I think this one was was a, was another good one, another winner. Thumbs up. So 
plug time. Uh, Joe, do you have anything to uh, plug? I know, again, you, you, we, let's make it clear. I, I don't want to get you in trouble. As Joe said earlier, do not ask him to be on your podcast. Leave Joe alone. He's, he's got a family. He's got stuff to do. But is there anything you do that you would like to plug? Oh, it's Trevor's favorite show, the Five Star Match Game, the pro oh wrestling trivia show over at the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. We have a new episode coming up. Should be a little bit after this episode comes up, Monday or Tuesday of next week. We have the show is about the Clash of the Champions, and we have a Clash of the Champions. We have returning panel from a Starcade show last year of David Bixenspan, Chris Zellner, and Rob uh, Naylor, uh, the three <laughs> men who co-host different shows together. And it is a pretty incredible trivia event, is all I'll say. So look forward to that. And if you like Matt and Trevor, they have appeared multiple times. Matt is a, I think, a multi-time winner. I have won twice. Yes. Yep. And uh, Trevor is not. <laughs> Joe, I, I, I saw you plug that episode. That's a great lineup earlier in the week. Uh, let me ask you a few things. Uh, did any contestant during the show scratch a bug bite and start like uncontrollably bleeding from the leg during the show? Uh, did anyone miss uh, call Helen Hart Martha Hart and not realize it, and then do it a second time and not realize it? And like, like those are the important things because to me, that's what makes a great show. Uh, no, and no. Okay, but you do have other shows in the archives where someone does that. Someone's <laughs> yes. stupid. Anyway, anyway, okay. Well, I, know, I, I am. I am. I'm. I have to say, I am really, really excited to hear that episode of Five Star Match Game that has all sorts of things that I like, and so I cannot wait. Yeah, that that honestly sounds great. Everyone, if you're a fan of wrestling trivia, obviously there's. I think there's been one other wrestling trivia show that I know of, but like honestly, it's a really fun show to listen to. It's a fun show to play. Joe does a great job wrangling really good, interesting guests that know their stuff, and occasionally he does some pick someone that doesn't know their stuff, but then usually they make themselves a buffoon and it becomes funny. Hopefully, anyway, but you should listen. Five star match game on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. In terms of plugs from us. Um, my name, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Trevor Dame, D-A-M as in mother E, Mayor M-G-F, M as in mother again, because M sometimes sounds like N, as I've learned lately when I've been dealing with doctors. Uh, nothing's wrong with me, don't worry. Um, you can contact us on through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. And that is that. The well, next I, I want to plug oh, one other oh, thing. The oh, next, yes, the, the, the next Connecticut show, um, which is in October, is the first of, uh, to this point in our lives, three shows that Joe Gagne and I watched together in person. So that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I actually was looking ahead to the review Joe had written of that show, and he actually like mentions getting to meet you, and I was like, oh wow, like. It's like I'm walking in on something. I'm not supposed to be walking in on, like, just seeing. He, wait, I, wait. What do you talking. think we did at that show, uh, uh, Trevor? <laughs> Look, <laughs> a judge. Not going to judge. I am very unjust. I, I, I wish, they want. but Joe is a married man. <laughs> oh. Well, was he married then? Joe, were you married then? I was not married then. No. See, see, I, I already caught you in a lie. I caught you in a lie. <laughs> anyway. Moving on, next time on the show, we will be covering The Homecoming, which is uh, Ring of Honor's first show in months in Philadelphia, uh, Daniel's and AJ's first matches in Ring of Honor in Philadelphia since 2003, uh, Philly Street Fight between Jimmy Rave and AJ Styles, um, tag title rematch, uh, Spanky's back after being in Japan for a while, and of course the main event, Christopher Daniels and CM Punk wrestle each other, and then they wrestle each other. And then they wrestle each other some more. And we're talking about revisiting matches that have like 
some some device of thoughts. We will that will be a match we'll be covering. And as usual through the years, you do not know what you're supposed to think about until me and Matt give you the final call. We will settle all scores next time on through the years. So until then, until next time, have a good time, have a great time. <laughs>